and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And um, today I was given, uh, I reached out to David Smalley. I, I did a show um, on applied ethics, again, the, the Abraham test. He he came on our SNS show and he invited me onto his show, Dogma Debates, to discuss the Abraham test and, you know, whether you should kill uh, your, your child if God, uh, if a morally perfect God orders you to do it. And, uh, you know, the, the fans probably know my answer to that, but... Um, yeah, I just wanted, I reached out to David Smalley and asked uh, permission if I'd be able to, to post up that show in full um, for, for my audience to enjoy, and he, he gave me permission. And uh, just as a bit of uh, some good news, so uh, David Smalley has agreed to, to do a joint show um, again with me in, in mid-August, August 10th, we're scheduled to record that. And that's going to be on the morality or the moral justification uh, for the atonement and specifically looking at uh, penal substitution um, and my take on that in terms of a a qu- consequentialist as opposed to a retributionist uh, justification for punishment and how it might make sense to, to punish an innocent person an innocent person namely Jesus for the crimes or sins of another person uh, so look out for that that'll come out sometime in mid-august uh, but in the meantime uh, just enjoy this old show I, I did about uh, over a year ago now uh, on the dogma debates. All right, take care. What you're about to hear is like nothing you've heard before. It'll make you laugh. It'll upset you. But most importantly, it'll make you think. From the Podcast One studio in Beverly Hills, California, this is Dogma Debate with David Smalley. Welcome to Dogma Debate. I'm so excited for this episode. Ever since I was a guest on Skeptics and Seekers, the podcast, you got to go check that one out. I was a guest on there with a guy, a host named David and a co-host named Dale, and we got into a, a, a pretty uh, lively discussion about some different debate topics, and one specific question came up, and it's something that we've had happen on this show before. In which someone says, and it kind of just happens in passing because you tend to throw out a lot of these arguments, and something came up along the lines of, well, you know, what would happen if God told you to kill your kids? Would you do it? And that's when things got weird because most people have a pretty solid answer to that. They go, well, no, of course not. That's not how that works or whatever. My guest today had a different answer to that, and I was like, hold on. I don't want to get into that on this podcast. Let's. I want to have you on my show, and I, I want to hear your answer. Now, I didn't hear his answer yet, but he did tell me his answer is unconventional, which leads me to believe that it's likely a yes, that there is someone out there who says, yes, I, I would do that. And the, the first person that comes to mind, and this is for the old school fourth listener, we had a rapper, a Christian rapper on the show. Now, I think his name was Elias. Hope I'm saying that right. Who absolutely said he would. And he even went into torture and beating and whatever God said he would do. And it it created so many people wanting to comment. And a lot of people were like, well, this guy needs religion. Leave him alone. David, maybe there are some people you shouldn't talk to. I don't get that vibe from my guest today. So that's what we're going to be talking about. How far will you take God's orders? 
And how do you know those orders are coming from God? That's what we're doing on today's Dogma Debate. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to this. Um, I do want to tell you right now, this Saturday, I am at the Comedy Store in Hollywood with Jamie Kennedy. Yes, that Jamie Kennedy. Malibu's Most Wanted. Heckler. The Jamie Kennedy Experiment. That Jamie Kennedy. Headlines all over the country. I've just been texting with him today. He's a great guy. And uh, we may be working on some other things in the future together. But I want to tell you right now, this Saturday at the Comedy Store, uh, he's going to be headlining. I'm going to be featuring. We've got a ton of great comedians. And last time I told you guys about this, uh, last month when I headlined, guys, we sold out three hours before the show started. There was a line wrapped around the building. We had to tell like 40-something people they couldn't get in. Uh, People showed up ready to buy tickets at the door. There were none available. They only allow 70 tickets to be sold for this room. So if you're wanting to be a part of this show, you're wanting to be in the audience, now's your chance. Yes, you'll get to shake hands and kiss the babies and everything else at the show, but I'm telling you now, Get your tickets now. This isn't some sales pitch. The tickets are only 15 bucks. That is a cheap comedy show. You're going to see probably eight or nine, maybe ten comedians uh, for that price. It's about an hour and a half to two hour long show. It's a great time. It's right there on Sunset Boulevard. It's the Comedy Store, 10.30 p.m. Saturday, March 16th. You got to check that out, but go get your tickets early. Go to davidcsmalley.com, click on comedy or click on tickets. It'll link you straight through to buy your tickets. Um, Coming up on Dogma Debate, I've got a couple of exciting things to tell you about. We've got um, SJ is coming back on the show, and a lot of you guys really loved when she was on. Uh, Ben Bramer is going to be on the show again. And uh, there's another crystal believer who we were talking the other day about the episode that we just put out. And she was like, nope, nope, nope. I would be able to tell. I would definitely be. That that rose quartz, by the way, that happened at the end of the show, uh, that that our, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But spoiler alert, stop listening to this if you haven't heard that show and go back and listen. She gets to the very end of the show, and she's got a quartz, and she doesn't know, her eyes are closed, and I put a, a rose quartz, which is supposed to be the most, one of the most energetic crystals out there, according to that, to that, that belief system, and I put a rock in her other hand. She thought they were both rocks. She felt no energy whatsoever, and when she opened her eyes, she was shocked to find out that she felt no energy. She felt nothing from these crystals. Um, and we did a, a, a series of experiments, and, and we did a double blind, and it was really fun. We had an atheist in the studio. We blindfolded and also did it. KT Tatara did it, my co-host. Um, so we had someone listen to bits of that and was like, nope, I would definitely be able to tell. She doesn't know what she's doing. So just like sometimes when I have a Christian on and they go, that person wasn't a real Christian. Let me, <laughs> you know, I'll have you bowing before Jesus today. Uh, I'll tell you now. I'm noticing that this is starting in other aspects of belief. Someone goes, oh, no, I believe in crystals so strongly. Even though I've heard your experiment where a crystal healer couldn't tell the difference between a crystal and a rock without looking, I I believe in it so strongly that the person is flawed, not the crystals, right? That's That's sort of the way these beliefs go. The person is messed up, not the belief. The person is messed up, not the God, not the doctrine, right? And that's the pattern that I see with things that, that, I, that I don't have a belief in and, and that others do. So we've invited her to come in studio, and not only are we going to test crystals, we are bringing a Ouija board. 
because that conversation also came up. And so we've already got that booked. It's already booked out through the middle of April. Uh, so if you, and, and some of these episodes are going to stop at some point and you're going to have a longer deep dive version of it for patrons only. So go ahead and sign up, support the show. And then whenever you support the show, you're going to get your own special RSS link to put into your podcast app so that you can get them on whatever you currently listen to podcasts on. You don't have to use the Patreon app. You're going to be able to plug your special RSS feed in. And as long as you're a, a paid member on Patreon, a paid fourth listener, you're going to keep getting the audio download straight to whatever app you're using. And it's a blast. If you don't know how to get that app uh, or don't know how to get your RSS feed, go to support.patreon.com. They can help you with it. But it's fairly straightforward. It's pretty easy. It's right on the main homepage. Uh, you have a special artist. They, they even give me one, and it's my account. So I see how it works. Um, so go over to uh, patreon.com slash David C. Smalley. Sign up, support the show. You're going to get all the behind the scenes, the extended long shows, and the extra stuff. I'm even putting um, uh, uh, clips from my stand-up comedy up there on Patreon, as well as some more behind-the-scenes things and um, extra videos and all sorts of fun stuff. Even some behind-the-scenes like pictures from some of my comedy shows that I'm not sharing anywhere else. So, uh, yeah, patreon.com slash David C. Smalley, all things David Smalley and Dogmint Debate. And I've got some really fun episodes coming up for you guys, and I can't wait to share those with you. So your support on Patreon will be much appreciated. My guest today is a co-host on Skeptics and Seekers, the podcast. The website there is skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Check them out. I was a recent guest on their show. Join me in welcoming Dale Glover to Dogma Debate. Dale, Hello. nice to have you today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I loved having you on our show. I thought you were uh, someone who was very thoughtful in, in the answers that you gave. So uh, I'm honored to to give my you know give me a turn and come on to your show. Yeah, I, I I'm this is I love building relationships like this and talking to people that I disagree with with within their worldview, and to just kind of dive into things and and have more long form discussions. I I miss that. And we were supposed to do this last week, but I was almost dead. Um, I man, and I, so I apologize that I had to reschedule. I appreciate you being flexible with me and rescheduling to today. Man, I, I, the flu blindsided me, man. And, and I, people often ask me, do you get the flu shot? And the answer is typically no. I usually don't get it. There are a couple of reasons why. And I want to talk about the flu for a second if we can. Um, sure. I typically don't do the flu shot. Now, I did, and, and just so everyone knows, while I was nearly dead with the flu, I did hours and hours of research, uh, reading and watching videos on the flu, because I find it fascinating. I wanted to know what was happening in my body and, and what was going on, uh, how it attacks your system, how your system fights back, why some people have a harder time fighting back than others and autoimmune disorders and everything else. And so I, I learned a ton while I was, while I was uh, barely able to move. But this was one of those things that like, it was so bad. I was I was sitting on a. I don't know if you guys know what a love sack is. It's like a. I don't. They don't like to be called bean bags because there's not bean bags. But it's like a giant. If you could imagine a giant bean bag shaped chair that is stuffed okay. with like really high quality couch foam and bed foam. It's a foam based mm -hmm. thing, but it's a giant circle that you just plop down in. I was I was in the love sack, and I mean I would just barely move to change positions. And if any air got into my blanket, I would be just head to toe in chills. 
I had a fever. I felt disgusting. I felt nauseous. It was awful. I mean, terrible. And around day three, which was, I was at about my worst, my daughter, Talissa, caught it. And then I had to start taking care of her while I was still sick. And I like I made this soup and I got all this medication. And we were both pretty bad off for, for a, a solid week. It was awful. And so and I, we, we were talking just before the show and you said you had it when you were a kid. And you kind of did the same thing on watching, watching something, right? Uh, yeah, not, not, not quite the same level, but yeah, I remember as a kid watching, uh, magic school bus episode where it was talking about, you know, what happens to your body when you, when you're sick and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's, there's something kind of perversely comforting about knowing about what's going on for some weird reason. So, yeah, no, that's, uh, and that's a big yeah. part of like cognitive behavioral therapy. When someone's having an anxiety attack. If you can break down scientifically what's happening in their body, explaining that, like, you know, it comes through evolution, it comes from the capillaries constricting in the brain, and you're not thinking clearly, your body gets pumped full of adrenaline and cortisol, and you you start to understand chemically and scientifically what's happening in your body, it's just a false alarm. You know, your body thinks you're under attack, like a gazelle feels when a lion jumps out of the bush. Um, so your body is just in that mode, like lion, lion, lion. And you just have to realize there is no lion and you can take control of it. And there are ways even without medications to sort of get a hold of that. And I think it's, it's a fascinating way to look at it. So when I was watching this thing about the flu, it talked a lot about the flu shot. There's this myth that you get the flu shot, you can get sick. And so many people believe this, that other skeptics, people that I talk to who are skeptics, will go, I don't get the flu shot because it makes you sick. It, it can't make you sick. This has been debunked multiple times. And it often gets confused because there's also a swab or like a squirt thing in your nose that you can get. That okay. does make you sick. But it makes you a little bit sick instead of a lot sick. The flu shot cannot make you sick. Um... And the, the way it works, yeah. the way it works, and again, if there's a medical professional out there and I get some terminology wrong, go to the contact form on davidcsmalley.com, let me know, I'll correct it in the future. But here's what I understood from my research. It essentially, the way the flu shot works is it, it injects sort of what the virus looks like into your system so that your immune system can get sort of a map of how it looks and develop an immunity. So that if the flu comes around, that is that same strand, your body will be able to fight it off and you'll never even know it. The problem is yeah. there are often there are different strands, different versions of the flu floating around at the same time. So if you get vaccinated with that specific strand and then a different strand comes around, you can still get the flu. And so yeah, exactly. it's like a different version of that. So sometimes people will get the shot and then a couple of days later happen to get a different version of the flu because it's going around, and then they think the flu shot made them sick, right? And so because there's always been that chance anyway, I'm like, I'm just not going to do it. I just, I don't know, I'm just not going to. And for a solid, like, 10 years, I didn't get the flu. I never had it. Because I would of get... that reason? <laughs> because of that reason? Oh, okay, know. okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't get the flu shot either, but it's not not because of that. Like, I was always... You know, it's it's fine. I trust the doctors and, and medical people and that sort of thing. But uh, I guess for me, it was just sort of laziness and also 
I've never really needed that. Like, I'll get sick maybe once a year with a common cold or something like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't typically get the flu. So those those are my reasons. But it's interesting that. So this was actually your reason. You thought the flu shot caused people to get the flu and that sort of thing, eh? Well, no, no, no. It's not that I thought that. I just kind of the same thing. I, I never, I just never really got the flu. And so it, uh, if it was a constant thing, like I'm more thinking about getting it now that I've had the flu because that was absolutely horrendous. I, I've never, I mean, you, everybody out there knows what it's like to get that feeling like right before you get sick, like the day before you're like, I'm getting sick tomorrow. Like I'm not incapacitated right now, but I feel it. There's just something in your body where you go, ugh, it's happening tomorrow. And then you wake up in the morning, you've got the body aches, you've got fever, and you feel it, you feel terrible. This this hit me all in one day. I mean, and it was Friday. It was actually right hours after we finished the Crystal Healing episode. We come home. I, I came home and I was fine on the drive home. I, I went to dinner with KT. We, we ate at uh, Bristol Farms there in Beverly Hills. We hung out for a couple of hours. I drove home. I never had any issue. I walk in the door, and I'm telling you, I walk into my apartment, and I took a breath, and as I'm exhaling that breath, I was just head-to-toe overcome with body aches, and it was powerful. Like, I've never had something happen that, like, come on that sudden. And, uh, man, immediately I was just out. I was like, I can't function. I don't want to move. I had chills and body aches and it was, it was terrible. So I just got over the counter Theraflu. Um, I will tell you, here's my little non-medical tip. That's probably considered bad medical advice. You know, those white monster energy drinks, the zero ultra. Yeah, they're, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, there's zero calories, zero sugar. They're not like your typical energy drink. They've got a lot of vitamins. It's vitamin B12, B3, B6, uh, vitamin B5. Uh, it's got niacin and energy and ginseng and all kinds of other stuff in it. Um, when I would take like two or three Advil and drink one of those monsters, the white ones, I felt that was the closest I felt to a human being during my time being out. It, like it was the first time I could actually open my laptop, respond to a few emails and function until that wore off. And then I was back to being a zombie. Um, so I'm not, I'm not advocating for it, but I'm telling you it definitely helped me in the, in the midst of feeling like absolute dog shit. That was one thing that made me feel somewhat normal for a short amount of time. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's interesting. The, the thing uh, I'll just say up front, thank goodness that you, you know, you're back to more feeling like yourself instead of a zombie again. Because, um, yeah, the flu can be brutal. It's it's going around these days for for whatever reason. A bunch of people at um, my church were out with the flu. It was it was almost empty, believe it or not, uh, last Sunday. So, um, yeah, th- thank God, you know, you're starting to feel more like yourself. And I hope you you nip this thing and get rid of it. Yeah, I'm I'm on. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's been I think last Friday. So we're looking at. You know, I'm I'm like 14 days, or not 14 days, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, about 10 days right now. Um, <clears throat> I've got a little bit of a cough, a little bit of stopped up, but man, body wise, I feel fantastic. So I'm I'm so thankful um, for uh, for my immune system more so than God, to be honest with you. Um, I'm thankful that my immune yeah. system fought it off. I'm thankful that Theraflu exists. I'm thankful that ibuprofen and acetaminophen are real things. 
And uh, yeah, selfishly, uh, a little bit of zero ultra monster energy drink, which brought me back to life when I was dying. So, um, good show. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cool. Glad to have you back. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to be back, man. It's nice. It's nice. Um, okay, so uh, let's dive into this, man. Uh, let's let's first talk a little bit about your background, because um, I know we we didn't really get into that too deeply on on that other show, but I want to get into your background and then how you ended up finding uh, David and starting this podcast that that you do with him. Yeah, absolutely. So so I uh, grew up as a Christian kind of thing, but um, I never really got too much into questioning my faith. You know, I was more sort of along the lines of, uh, you know, these are my beliefs and I keep them myself and I just do my own thing. Um, weirdly enough, it wasn't until I graduated university um, when I was at my first job after graduating at, that a Jehovah's Witness came up and started sharing her faith and trying to convert me to that. So I sort of figured, okay, uh, I might as well share my faith and, and try to expose why I think you're wrong. So over the course of interacting with her, uh, some of the other colleagues who were atheists and that sort of thing picked up on these conversations and they started getting involved in that sort of thing. So I started learning um, the importance for apologetics at that point. So I started getting wrapped up for a couple of years in you know, apologetics arguments, uh, you know, things like you you mentioned, the scientific foreknowledge argument or the evidence for the resurrection and, the, and these sorts of things. Um, but uh, sort of a triggering event for me, um, I would sort of push any doubts that I had to one side, and I would just focus on the reasons to believe. And I remember having a conversation with a couple of my friends from high school, um, and I was trying to present to them the evidence from the resurrection, and, and you know, some, I thought there was a good argument from prophecies and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they just weren't understanding it. They weren't getting it at all. Were these um, were these Christian friends or, or skeptics? They're they're skeptics. And, okay. You know, they're yeah, they're apathetic. They they don't care about religion and that sort of thing. It was just sort of a a topic that I brought that got brought up, and so we got into it for a bit. Um, but yeah, so. You know, they were they were coming back on me with things like, oh, but you can't have sex until you're married, or, you know, oh, I have to waste Sundays going to church and this sort of thing. And I remember getting frustrated with them, like, what, well, you know, these are stupid objections. Forget about that. I'm giving you ev- good evidence that it's true. Um, and I'll never forget this. They, they just looked at me and it's like, yeah, but look what you're doing. You're just dismissing the evidence that's important for us. These are important factors as to why we don't believe. And you just want us to focus on what you want to. And that was sort of a realization to me that, yeah, if you, if you want to know that Christianity is true or, or any religion, you have to look at the, both the positive evidences for it and the negative evidences against it. Um, so really within three months, I realized, hey, I, I don't think I'm in a place where I actually believe this. Um, I have to really tackle this and study you know, and find out if Christianity is actually true. So, yeah, I, I left the church, um, and I went on sort of a search, studying the various evidences for the religions. It took me about eight to nine years. Um, I've, I've been lucky enough to meet people like Gary Habermas and, and you know, work with people like Shabir Ali or Michael Kona and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, after about, you know, finally I've come up with a method to 
sort of bring in both the positive and negative evidences and then, you know, combine that into uh, a version of Bayes' theorem that allows me to calculate a cumulative probability. So I actually came out just this May about 53.14% in favor of Christianity, which sounds a bit weird. Um, but yeah, so I place my faith in Christ. It's more probable than not, uh, given all the evidences I, I factored in. Um, none of the other religions uh, came out to having a positive probability or anything like that. So uh, yeah, that, and then in terms of so I went on to the Unbelievable Boards. Uh, this is how I met David Johnson, who's my co-host on Skeptics and Seekers. Um, and they were sort of working, him and his friend Andrew were sort of working on um, doing a book called Still Unbelievable as a response book to Justin Briley's book. Um, so yeah, that, that's on reasonpress.net uh, there. But um, yeah, I, I met them through that and started interacting with them. And um, they were kind of interested in my tale. So so David wanted to start up a new show, a podcast where we have a, a skeptic and a Christian who interact and have real conversations about these important topics. Um, you know, we, we bring on guests, as you know, you were, you were one of them and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very informal. It's a raw discussion. It's like, a, it's like we're having a real conversation in the moment and, and we're trying to get to the truth. So uh, yeah, that, that's me in a nutshell there. That's cool, man. I appreciate that. You brought up a couple of things. I took notes while you were talking. At some point today, I do want to get I want to get into that formula for calculating that probability because I'm fascinated sure. by that. And I think my a lot of my listeners, a lot of the skeptic listeners out there, as soon as you said that you went on this journey and then came, it came down to this 53 percent um, probability, a lot of them were probably thinking, you know, um, confirmation bias. He set out to prove what he wanted to see, and he found the answers he was looking for, and so he solidified his own thing, and he probably pushed away evidences that were against him. And so I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that as well, because I'm sure you've probably heard that before. So we're going to get into all of that, the, the probability piece. But uh, uh, talking about your podcast, I like that you said it's just a raw conversation. That's exactly what I like to do on, on this show, is long-form, raw, real conversations looking for the truth. Uh, when we were on that, when when we were on Skeptics and Seekers, you had mentioned that you didn't think David was a true seeker, um, but you just mentioned you know trying to get to the truth. So do you feel do do you feel like atheists often don't try to get to the truth? That they're just sort of saying nah nah and being you know sort of the uh the negative nancy just shooting down anything christians have to say are they do, do you ever find that 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 atheists aren't quite as interested in the truth as they claim to be um so in the in answer yes of course i do find that there are atheists uh that are not interested in the truth um i also find that there are christians like that as well um I don't, I don't know numbers. Like I wouldn't say, oh, the majority of skeptics are like that or anything. I, I just have no notion. Um, it is true. I, I do. I don't think that my my own co-host is a real seeker. That's that's what I call it. Um, and I, I mentioned that on the show, and we kind of we kind of went back and forth. And I gave a couple examples as to why I thought that was. Um, so, it, in the, yeah, I guess in terms of my criteria as to what a real seeker is. Uh, did you want me to say what that is for the audience? Sure, or? yeah, sure. Sure, so basically I think 
you have a duty to be a real seeker means that you have to be open-minded to learning the truth, um, whatever that truth is. Um, secondly, you have to actively seek uh, for the truth. You can't just sit down and, and wait for the truth to come to you and that sort of thing. You should get out there and, and look at the evidences and try your best to whatever degree you, you as an individual are able to, uh, to discover what that truth is. And then finally, um, you have to be willing to obey that truth um, or follow that truth or submit to it, whatever you want to say, uh, once you discover what that uh, religious truth is. Um, if anyone meets that, that's what I call a real seeker, um, then it's on God. It's God's responsibility to do his part. You know, obviously no one can come to faith unless, unless uh, the Holy Spirit draws them to them or God draws them. And that sort of thing. So at that point, the responsibility is on God to reveal the truth to you before the point of no return, before you lose out, uh, unjustifiably lose out on that opportunity to be saved or that sort of thing. So yeah, that's, that's my notion of what a real seeker is. Wow, that's okay. So during that conversation, I remember, and I don't want to talk about David the whole time, <laughs> but during that conversation... Oh, he'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, during that conversation, I I pushed back. I remember saying to you, I was like, well, I... Because you, you made some comment along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, that if if the evidence was right in front of David or if if something happened in a way that was shown to David and, you know, according to his own understanding of reality that he was wrong about this or that there was a God or that there is better evidence of the resurrection or whatever. You said he would reject that. I said, I bet he would be open to it and he is a true seeker and he, he would be willing to change his mind. And David agreed with me. He was like, yes, I absolutely would be open to it. And you still pushed back. You're like, no, you wouldn't. Do you think you just know him better or do you think that he's lying, or do you think he thinks he's open to it, but he wouldn't be? What do you think is going on there when he says, yes, I would be open to that evidence? Because there are a lot of atheists who say, I'm open to that. But do you think we really yeah. are? Um, okay, so so you want me to answer in general, like about atheists? or Well, both. I, I, I want to know David first, and then tell me in general about atheists. Okay, so, so yeah, and I, I was a bit... Um, so with, with David, my honest impression is that he's, he's um, I guess he's lying. He's, not, he's told me explicitly and directly with, you know, I, I gave the example of the shroud and that sort of thing. He, he's, he said he's never looked into it before, but with you, he was saying, no, I, I researched it and that sort of thing. But I don't think he really has researched it um, in terms of, you know, looking at both sides and that sort of thing. I, I was bringing to him new evidence. And even if I'm wrong about, you know, his past studies, pretend I misunderstood him and, and he did study it, I guarantee you 100% he has told me specifically that he's not open to it now. And this is something that I think you yourself echoed. You, you yourself said, look, I, I studied the Shroud and I found these things and I, I found it wanting, so I don't need to remain open um, to learning that I'm wrong. Is, is that a correct uh, characterization of you, first of all? Or? Well, I mean, for me, the shroud is something that has been settled. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't, you know, one of my quotes that often gets passed around, and I'm proud of this one, is that 
Skepticism isn't just refraining from automatic acceptance. It's also refraining from automatic rejection as well. But that is within reason, okay? So, and what, what I mean by that is, there are people out there that as soon as they hear something, like, oh, this, this crystal can store energy. They go, bullshit, no, it can't, that's ridiculous, no, 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 no. You go, well, research it and look at it. No, that's dumb, I'm not, not going to look at it. Okay, but this, maybe this could store energy somehow. It, it doesn't mean it's magical, just look into it. Nope, it's ridiculous, I'm not going to do it. That hyper-skepticism, I think, is bad for people. I really do. I think remaining open and going, yeah, I'll look into it. Let's test it. Let's do a double-blind experiment in a studio. Let's do research. Let's bring in a crystal healer. Let's experiment. Let's explore this opportunity. To me, that's fun. And you can have your own mind made up about what you think might the, out, the outcome might be. You can have your own hypothesis. But to just outright push things away is not healthy. On the other hand... If you were to tell me that you know for a fact that leprechauns exist and you want me to go on this journey with you chasing a mythical creature, there are some things I can go, we kind of settled that, you know? I'm not, I don't need to go off and chase everything. So naturally, as most things are a sliding scale, I think that this is one of those gray areas where you go, look, the shroud, um, it has been tested. Uh, there's been an interview. Uh, there have been multiple scientists take pieces of it. They've got, at least in the article that I sent you, um, someone admitting that it was art, that it was, it was not intentionally uh, set out to be a fraud, but it was, it was art and that it was used as fraud. And, um, you know, some will say, Oh, it's a means to an end. And I, so once something has been scientifically tested, is it possible that we could dig things up and go, hey, we got the wrong guy, or hey, let's do another DNA test? Sure, maybe maybe so. I, I don't know that the shroud is one of those things for me. I will say that if you brought something else up about the shroud that I didn't know, or I hadn't heard of, I would be open to looking into it. But, you know, I I am leaning towards it being a fake since every scientist who's touched it has said that it's not real. And that it's not even from the time, the era in which Jesus would have lived. And then we have a confession from an artist, you know, who said he made it. So I just, I, I don't know that that one's necessary. But that doesn't mean I'm not open to anything. I guess it would depend on what the evidence is and, and who it's being presented by, to be honest with you. Okay. All right. So just, if you don't mind me, just sort of probing you, because you're here to, you know, give give your take and what you did and that sort of thing, rather than focusing on my partner. Um but okay, so great. You would be you would remain open if there is new evidence presented of the shroud. Um, so in the first place, you're not 100% convinced the shroud is a fake and and unworthy of you know unworthy um, of your attention at all. Well, I correct? well right now I would say the evidence is in that it's 100% fake. Oh well, okay. Yeah, right okay, now, so, but so but I, but well, but again, but um, we have been convinced before in w- within science. And then found a way to to fix things, right? So right now, as it sits, I am convinced it is art. Uh, and I'm convinced it's from an era in which there's not even question that there was a, a person named Jesus who existed. It was it was it's dated to around the medieval times, so it's has nothing. It's not even close to being at the time of Jesus. So that I'm, you know, but if there was new evidence introduced, I would be, I would be, I would entertain it. But let me just say too, even if we had something 
that was on the body of a man named Jesus, and even if the shroud was proven to be from that time, it doesn't prove anything metaphysical at all. It just proves that it covered a dead body. You know what I mean? It, it, it wouldn't prove that he was divine or that he rose from the dead, or, or it doesn't prove that the tomb was empty. It doesn't prove that he had that he ascended to heaven inside of all men. Like none of the mystical things that come along with the story of Jesus would be proven if if this shroud was proven to even be from that era or even to be from the tomb of Jesus. It it doesn't you know, you could have pulled that off a dead body, thrown the dead body in a river and still had the shroud. You see what I mean? So I don't, I don't understand the significance of it to be honest. Okay. So so yeah, so in the first place I would just say yeah, there's a difference. If you're saying you have 100% psychological certainty, that's that's different than, and this will come up later on, um, than claiming you have 100% knowledge that the shroud's fake. So, right. so that's good. If 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 it's mere psychological certainty, you're still open. So, sure. Yeah, I would just come back and challenge you, and and just sort of say, okay, when you when you came to these conclusions, did you seriously consider? the pro shroud side like do you, if i asked you don't don't google search I'll, I'll trust you as an honest guy but do you know what stirp is for example i remember it being brought up because i i so here's here's how it originally happened for me and, and i'm uh i'm a huge religious nerd like i am fascinated like when i when i go to barnes and noble i will go to the religious section and when i see a story or, or a book from someone who's like i went to hell and talked to satan and came back or whatever I I'm the I'm the guy buying those books. I buy them, I read them, I contact the author, I ask if they'll come on my show. I'm fascinated by people who claim to have religious experiences. Same with near-death experiences who say they went through the light and they talked with dead loved ones and came back. I had an atheist in my studio one time who said that she's not spiritual at all, but occasionally she can call spirits of her dead loved ones into her living room and have conversations with family members who have passed. I'm fascinated by things like that. I'm so into it. Uh, I buy books all the time that are uh, stories from the Bible or where to find it in the Bible or an A to Z list of uh, the things we have the most evidence for in the Bible. I'm, I'm all about that. And I've always been really interested in history as well. So anytime I find something or see something that has to do with religious history, I'm all about it. I, 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 when I was on a comedy tour, I went through Santa Fe. And there's this cathedral there that they call the the miracle the what staircase of miracles or the miracle staircase, like the way it's built, it should never be able to stand or exist. I spent hours in this Catholic church, looking at this this staircase and going through the rituals and walking through and lighting a candle. And I love everything about it. I find it fascinating. So when I first heard about the shroud, I was captivated. I was like, this is marvelous. Not only is it evidence against my side, sort of, but it's a piece of history. Even if it is from the 1600s or the 1300s, it's still fascinating, right? That something that old and, and that we can go see it and we can touch it and we can be a part of it and scientists can test it. That's fascinating to me. Maybe I'm just a big nerd, a big history nerd. I don't know, but I, I find it fascinating. So when I first heard about the Shroud, I was like, I have to know everything there is about the Shroud. And so I watched documentaries, I watched YouTube videos, I read articles. It's been many years since I've 
you know, been digging around into that evidence. But I do remember that stirred or whatever it is that you said. I, I do remember something about that coming up. I don't recall exactly what it is, but I, I do remember there was a time when I could have had that conversation with you for sure. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, basically there, the Shroud of Turin research project that uh, took place in 1978. Um, so they, they were a team of science, scientists that got together, the only team in history that's ever actually done scientific experimentation was was this part uh, of the documentary where they where they carbon dated the thing uh so the carbon dating took took place in 1988 do you mean the the proper one in nature or well I, 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 I saw a documentary i don't remember where it was but i did see a documentary of them taking the shroud and running it through scientific tests is, is this the group that did it it, it would be yeah okay if, if it okay. was back in 1978 um 88 so, so yeah right. the, you know, these are, and they're not all Christians. The, you know, I mean, Dr. Alan Adler is a, a blood expert, uh, or was a blood, blood expert. He's Jewish. Um, I'm personal friends with uh, Schwartz, who is the official Sterp photographer. He, he's uh, he's Jewish as well. He he will, you know, he's there for the science. Uh, he disagrees totally with me that, uh, you know, that he, he thinks that the shroud is authentic in that it, it actually belonged to Jesus. Uh, but just like what you were saying before, he's like, yeah, but so what? That that doesn't prove it's a miracle or, or that sort of thing. So right. he actually disagrees with my take. Um, so, yeah, the, there are literally dozens of peer-reviewed, hundreds of secular scientific peer-reviewed journals on the Shroud in terms of its image features and, and that sort of thing. All of it, every skeptic or pro-Shroud person bases their whatever they're writing on these experiments that were done in 1978. Um, so, yeah. Well, in, but but did, terms, did you did oh, you did you review that article that I sent you about the shroud? And I didn't know we were going to talk about the shroud did, today, yeah. or I would have pulled all this up and been prepared to have the discussion. But the the headline of that article that I sent you is 628 year old fake news. Scientists proved. Turin shroud not genuine again, and they talk about another forensic analysis of possible blood stains and things like that, and they talk about it being proven to be art from uh, the medieval era. So, I mean, even yeah. I don't know that that, that that it was from medieval times, not the biblical era, and that it's it's completely debunked. Yet there are scientists today still studying the shroud. So. So if what do you you're, think's going are you on talking there? about like the blood pattern analysis that was done in, in July of, of 2018, I think is what you're yes. talking about. Um, so is that what you're talking about? Are you talking yes. about like the carbon-14 or no, the... No, 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 the, the, like the, the, the blood pattern. The historical documents. You, you've referenced that. So that that's the memorandum of Bishop Darcis that, that you're talking about, I think. Um so yeah, I know that you're not prepared for the shroud. Do you want me to give sort of a comeback on that, or generalize how I take the evidence from the shroud, and what does that mean? What is the significance for Christianity? Like, well, whatever you would uh, really what I'm what I'm what I'm really focused on is whenever you said there are multiple non-Christian peer-reviewed, that right yep. there stands you, out, and I just go, well, hold on, um, because this article in the Independent uh, from the UK goes into detail about it being proven to be art and that those blood splatters or blood splatters are like someone doing a, a technique of like flicking a brush from an artistic perspective and then changing poses, changing 
uh, positions rather than someone lying still in the matter of someone who would be dead or you know the resurrected Messiah. And so it seems that we have conflicting um, reports from something, yet you're calling it peer-reviewed. And I'm going, how how is it possible that there's peer-reviewed something out there that says it's authentic and then something else also claiming to be peer-reviewed and scientific saying it's been completely debunked? I mean, that that's a huge red flag. And so I'm, I'm just asking you to address that piece. Sure. So, so yeah. So, um, first of all, in terms of peer review, um, there, there are peer reviewed articles that contradict each other, um, from time to time. So just because something's peer reviewed doesn't necessarily mean it's gospel. Um, but obviously it's something that you pay attention to. And, and this, um, on, on skeptics and seekers on my website, I do actually link to the actual peer-reviewed journal in the forensic sciences for the article, um, as well as provide some counters by pro-shroud people um, on this. So basically, they did a ser- two, two experiments. They did blood from the forearm to see how the blood flows, um, and then they compared that to pictures on the shroud um, to see, oh, well, see, the blood flow on the shroud is different from what we got in our experiment, therefore it can't be real. And same with the side wound, the chest wound. They they saw that the blood flow was inconsistent with what's on the shroud. And they, right. they go, well, see, that proves it's all fake. But uh, And that was using a plastic mannequin, that sort of thing. But just right off the bat, uh, just think about this, because sometimes they'll make bold claims. Do, do you honestly think that a plastic mannequin and the blood was... It, they, what they used as blood was more like red water. It, it was inconsistent with blood from a human being that would have presumably been in hypovolemic shock and, and that sort of thing, and uh, from you know being tortured and crucified, um, plus the body would have been in multiple positions, uh, which affects the way the blood flows and that sort of thing. So it's the response to it is, look, it's an, it's an invalid test. You can't conclude, oh, because the blood flows on the shroud are inconsistent with what happened in these experiments, therefore it's uh, it's a fake. It, it's painted blood, or it's not real blood. It doesn't represent real blood flows because the parameters that they did those experiments don't fit the reality of what could have been if it was Jesus and that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, for sure. And I, what I want to do is, um, do you have this this article that I sent you linked on your website as well? Um, I don't, but I will put that put that up. If you'll do that, I'll just have everybody go to your website for this. Uh, make sure, guys, that he's got it linked. It's good. It's the independent.co.uk. It's a, an independent story on the shroud. It goes into detail, getting quotes from a pope, I believe, in the 1300s, uh, expressing lament that this was used to trick people um talking about it being you know a perversion of faith and and i don't know where this came from or you know i guess i i I don't want to spend the rest of the show on on this shroud but um i just want people to look at both both sides of this um i'm 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 open to more information about it uh, but it it seems pretty clear to me that the Catholic Church has spoken out against it, that many uh, theologians have said, I'm not going to waste any more time on it, it's a fraud, it was a piece of art from medieval times that was then used to trick people, and that this article even talks about people being hired by the church to pretend that miracles took place because of the shroud. Uh, 
and that that's where the real regret comes from is that people were lied and deceit um, uh, deceived and that they're expressing regret that something like this was used to trick people out of money and a lot of that is in this article as well so um I would be interested to see what people think about it. So, guys, if you're on Patreon and you're going to be listening to this show, do your research on it. And under the Patreon thing, I will post this article as well and a link to Dale's website. And if you guys want to have the discussion about that specifically, about the Shroud, uh, do so uh, under the show on our on our Patreon. Um, but yeah. let's 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 move on from there, uh, if if you don't mind. Uh- just yep, absolutely. Just before we do though, just for your for your fans, it, if you are interested in the shroud kind of thing, um, on my website, if you if you just search for shroud, um, I have various debates that include um, you know detailed sources pro and, and for uh, on the issues that uh, Smalley's talking about, such as the the memorandum evidence uh, from the bishop Bishop Darcy. It wasn't the Pope, um, as well as the carbon fourteen dating and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, if if you're interested, I, I would suggest check that out. And and there are sources on both sides. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing, I mean, especially when you look at it and go, "Wow, that's really cool." Could that have actually yeah. been on the face of you know a man named Jesus? I mean, that's it's it's interesting for sure. So yeah, um, one thing just to generalize it to, to sort of get away from the shroud that I, it. First of all, believe it or not, I don't even care about the dating of the shroud. The, the significance for me is um, the mechanism, how the images were formed, and that sort of thing. So, as a general way, like how, how do Christ, how do we evaluate positive evidences, whether it's resurrection or prophecies, whatever? And I've come up with like criteria for what I call a G belief authenticating event. So G stands for God belief. Um, I, I stole that from an atheist philosopher named Michael Martin. Um, but yeah, the, basically philosophers give you different ways to identify a quote-unquote miracle. Um, so, you know, first of all, it has to, it has to actually have happened. Um, you have to be able to prove it actually happened. Secondly, um, the event has to be proven to be extraordinary in some way. Um, so I, I look, uh, usually that's, you know, the com- the complexity angle, like how improbable is it to occur given natural law and that sort of thing. Um, I also add what I call a uniqueness falsification criterion. So the event should be unique. Okay, this is where context. Yeah, this is okay. where I start to have. This is where I start to mentally disconnect from the okay. conversation. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is okay. where I I back up and just go. Hold on, man. I took statistics courses in college. I know what it takes to develop a probability and a percentage and to get, I, I, I'm with you. We could hash out numbers all day and argue about probability and percentages, but I have a fundamental problem with glossing over things that are massively important to any probability. And when something has literally never happened there's really not a way to calculate a number. You would have to literally make it up out of thin air and plug a number in. It doesn't matter. All of these other things start to fall apart because we have zero evidence, zero recorded times in history that someone was dead in a cave for three days and came back to life. 
Never, not one single time has that ever been recorded in history. Okay. And so, so to have the so gospel, yeah, and so to have the gospel ha- say that it happened, and then to start putting percentages and probabilities around it, what you're doing, Dale, is you're taking absolute faith, mythology, and religious belief, and you're masquerading that as science. There is no science backing up that it is even remotely possible for someone to be dead for 72 hours and suddenly come back to life. It does not happen. Yeah, absolutely. There, There is no science that would back that up. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking for, I'm not looking to prove it scientifically. I'm, I'm looking to prove it through the implementation of my criteria. It's, it's a philosophical argument. Um, however, I, I will admit this, and, and this has to be admitted up front, that the probabilities I'm assigning, you, you say they're made up. Um, actually, yes, the, they are normative or subjective probabilities. I, I have no way of that I know of, of calculating these sort of things um, in some kind of statistical way or whatever, right? So I am, I am assigning a subjective probability um, to the various aspects. Um, but I think this is what we all do. I'm, I'm just being more explicit. Like when you look at the evidence for and against, you're, you're, you're saying, well, that the negative evidence outweighs the evidence for the resurrection. I don't find the resurrection persuasive. It, you know, it's whatever. You know, you're you're doing the same thing I'm doing in your head, just unconsciously. Whereas I'm making it more explicit. No, okay. What's the evidence for the resurrection? I think it's at sixty percent, um, or whatever. Okay. Or what's this negative evidence kind of thing? And then I I plug it into the formula to get an overall. Okay, let's do that. Let's let's talk about that formula. On the other side of the yeah. break, because that's kind of what I'm—that's kind of what I'm getting at. I don't even know how you can get above the number zero when talking about a dead person coming back to life. So, whatever formula you have, whatever mathematical equation you have, to me, it should just be filled with zeros. And so, I, I want to dive into how you're coming up with some sort of formula for for this philosophy that you have. I also want to talk about divine hiddenness. You said something really interesting, Dale. You said God's responsibility. And I've never heard a Christian say that on my show. That's usually things that I say. That God has a response. If God knows what it would take to change my mind, why doesn't he change my mind? It's, it's on him. He's the smart one. He's the adult in the relationship. I'm the puny human with a puny human brain. Why is he remaining hidden? When you said God's responsibility, I perked up and wrote it down. I can't wait to hear your notes on that. I, I want to I dive a little deeper into that. And then, of course, the question everyone's waiting for. We'll get to after the break as well. If God, if God told you to kill your kids, would you? We're going to get into that more with Dale Glover on Dogma Debate right after this. Don't worry. Whether you're on the righteous right or the screeching left, you'll find something in this show to complain about. At least it's not hell. That's one thing this show will always have going for it. It is better than hell for most people. 
Well, hope you have your support over at patreon.com slash David T. Smalley, where you're going to get the extended versions of all of these shows. And I think for that, Dale, I want to dive into the formula thing. I want to talk about divine hiddenness. I want to do that for the patrons who support the show. So let's do that. But before we get out of here on this portion, let's, let's dive into really what sparked the entire show to happen, which is this concept, this question if you if God told you, so do you do you have a child? Do you have two kids? What's your child situation? Yeah, no, I'm childless. I don't have any kids or anything. Oh, okay. I wonder if that changes this dynamic at all. Um, okay, so if you did have a child, and God told you to kill your kid, as He did, this isn't this isn't outrageous this is a bible story that we're talking about it's an, it's an abraham test in which abraham was told by god to kill his son isaac to prove that he loved god abraham attempts to go through with it is about to kill isaac and then an angel of the lord stops him and says okay now i know your love i'm going to reward you in this situation would you kill your kid if God told you to? Okay, so, so yeah, I, I'm going to answer that straight out. Um, in the hypothetical scenario that you give me, my answer is yes. Um, I would, or at the very least, let, let's say I'm a hypocrite and I, I talk a good game or that sort of thing. I believe that I should um, do that. Now, sorry, there are specific conditions or strict conditions, because I... I understand how that's going to come across to your audience. People are going to be like, what? You know, never have that Dale guy on again. He, he's insane. Um, so, so yeah, I would only do this um, if I had 100% knowledge that a morally perfect God is commanding me to do it. Um, and I've really thought about this. So I, I, I mentioned, I think I sent you an email before. And the way I I contextualize this, when I was coming up, you know, how, how the heck can a seemingly sane guy answer yes to, to this question? Um, and what I did is I contextualized it in terms of the three main sources for moral disagreement that, um, you know, ethicists or moral philosophers have come up with. Um, so I don't know, would you mind if we sort of flip and I lead the discussion for, for the next little bit and, and take us through some of that and we could have some interaction on each source of moral disagreement? That, I just got really excited. Let, let, let's do it. But I want to, I want to make sure. Let, and this is this is for the defense of my listener. I want to make sure that you're not deflecting. I got your answer. You said yes. I want to know why. So sure, you can you can lead the discussion and ask me whatever questions you want. But I want I want to let you know that at any point I might <clears throat> just point out that your line of questioning feels like a deflection or a distraction from the overall point. But yes, I'm willing to answer some of your questions. And that's perfect. Sorry, I'm choking on. That's perfectly fair. I, I, I believe that by going through this, you will understand. You may not agree with me. You may think I'm totally crazy, but you should understand exactly why I say yes. So, so yeah, let, let's start it. Let's do it. Um, okay. So, so what are the three main sources for moral disagreement? Um, the first are there are factual differences. We can disagree on. Uh, what the morally relevant facts or circumstances are. Um, the second is we can disagree about the existence 
um, or nature of uh, the moral principle that's being claimed to be violated or, or that sort of thing. Uh, and then the third one is we can have disagreement over the moral hierarchy. So that's sort of when two moral two or, or more moral principles are involved, but they conflict, and we we have to prioritize. Uh, you know, what, what is it? What's better to do, and that sort of thing. Um, so right away, I, I wanted to skip over the factual di- uh, differences and go straight to the second one because I think the factual disagreements are where we're going to have the most. Uh, back and forth or the most disagreement on. Um, so this is this is just sort of assuming um, all the facts are true. A, a morally perfect God is commanding me to do it and that sort of thing. But Well, hold on, hold on. I, I already have a problem with this. Uh, because moral, okay. morally perfect, in, in, in that instant, when it happens, when God says, kill your kid, being a person who likes to bring in probability and line things up and create a formula with G as God and all of these things. I, I, I get that your brain works in a way that you want to figure things out. You want to know the truth, which means you have to consider all possibilities, all reasonable possibilities. I'm yep, not, I'm not hearing you consider the possibility that God is real the real God is telling you to kill your kid, but that God is immoral and not worthy of your worship. You, you just sort of jump to the presupposition that if God is real, he is perfectly moral. And I don't buy that. I think that we've got to leave it on the table that God is a monster and also still exists. So, at the point in which you are convinced that God told you and you're convinced that it is the God of the Bible, why do you add morally perfect to it in your presupposition? Yeah, so so this would be this would be an, the reason I skipped over it is this would be an example of a, a factual disagreement. So that's the first source. Um but yeah, you're absolutely right. We shouldn't um skip over that. I if I don't have knowledge, 100% knowledge, that God is morally perfect in commanding me, I don't do it. Uh, it could be a maximal evil being. My answer is no, if, if well, how, I don't have 100%. How would you know the difference huh? between between 100% knowledge and you being 100% convinced? How, how could you perfect. tell the difference? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to ask you, it might sound like a deflection, but it's not, because this is the main thing that I thought we were going to be discussing in the factual. Okay, difference. so I'm still on the factual. Uh, okay, I can I can hold these off. Go ahead. Okay, and I promise we will get to it. So, okay. Okay, cool. So, so let's just forget about the factual things and just talk about what would be the principle that's being violated. Um, uh, and it would be the pr- principle of life or life preservation is what I, I think is happening. I'm taking someone's life, my, my own son. Um, so in the first place, there could be a denial that there is a principle and therefore if there's no principle being violated, you're not doing anything immoral. Um, I don't take this, so that's not me, but there are some people that might deny a principle of life and they'll say, oh, there's a principle of existence. So you're not really doing anything wrong because you're just converting their mode of existence from an earthly life into an afterlife or spiritual life or something like that. Um, So that isn't me. That doesn't describe me, but just be aware you might 
get that answer kind of thing, and you'd have to establish that there is this principle of life. Um, so what it comes down to for me is how do we define what is the nature of the principle of this principle of life? And it doesn't matter to me if it's a necessary moral truth or principle or you want to call it a societal thing, whatever it is, it's guiding our moral judgments here. And I'm sorry. So I think the way we define it is, look, we have a duty to protect and preserve human life. Um, so long as there isn't a moral justification for not doing so. And that's the qualifier that I think is going to solve this, uh, this source of disagreement. So I've prepared uh, various four thought experiments for you, Smalley. Um, so the first one is, is just a general question. Do, do you think it's ever, there is ever a moral justification for taking the life of another human being? Yes. Perfect. And do you want to just name one example? Or? Um, sure. The easy one would be uh, someone breaks into your home and tries to harm your child. Perfect. Okay. Um, okay, so here's my second thought experiment. This is highlighting the difference between the taking of an innocent life versus a guilty life. So uh, let's imagine there's a pregnant woman, um, and you become aware, you're the only one aware that can do anything about it. She has a remote control button to blow up an office building full of innocent workers, uh, but she's pregnant. She's eight months pregnant, and let's just pretend you, you consider that a human life, you know, not, not getting into abortion or anything like that. Um, you have, I, you have you're fun. asking me, again, you're asking me to uh, suspend a lot of fact-based things in order to go along with you on this thought experiment. So I just want to be clear for the listener, I'm not pushing back because he's asked me to suspend facts and go along with his experiment. So I am, but I'm all I'm disagreeing with so many of these of these of these pieces. But go ahead. Cool. Fair fair enough. And that that's good for you to point out there. But okay, yeah, just just going with the spirit, right? The of what I'm trying to illustrate. So uh, let's say you, you have a gun, you can shoot and kill the woman, but by doing so, you'd kill the innocent baby, or you can do nothing, and she'll press the button and blow up all those innocent workers. Um, those are the only two options. So what what do you do? Well, I have to ask a qualifying question. How far along pregnant is she? Uh, let's say eight months. If she's eight months, I could shoot her in the head, and the baby could be saved. Okay. Uh, I'm just being realistic that's here. not an option. Like, go, go along with the spirit of, of the question. Pretend the baby will die, um, and you think it's a life. Do you, would you kill that to save all the other innocent workers? Yeah, I would. I would. And, and I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's, one, it's, it's one life. I mean, again, suspending a lot of other different options. Assuming I could shoot her, but I couldn't shoot her hand. Assuming I could, you know. There's so many different things. Um, that we're assuming. I get what you're trying to do in the thought experiment. Uh, sure. If she's pregnant, there's this unborn fetus. Would I kill the mother to save a, an entire building full of people? Yes, I, I understand. And yes, I would have to say I would do that. Perfect. Okay. And, and uh, see, exact same example, uh, but this time the bomb is in a jail full of guilty rapists and murderers and, and bad people, guilty people. Uh, what do you do there? Ooh, that's a good one, man. I tried. I put some thought into this. So. <laughs> yeah, these are fun. Um, you know, I think we need to come up with like a board game, like a moral board game of like, you know what I mean? Like shifting the uh, yeah. 
the the train on the railroad tracks you know if it's a stranger over there versus the 10 people and then they change it and go no now it's your daughter that's on the train track that one person would you kill 20 people to save your daughter you know it's these are these are really fun um you know i um i have to say i i i still value human life even if they are guilty of a crime um, I've never thought about this before. I, I value human life even if they're guilty. Also, there are presumably, just percentage-wise, innocent people in the jail. Although you did tell me that it's filled with guilty people. That's part yeah. of your thing. Um... And some of it also comes down to I'm always going to be concerned that I'm missing information. You know what I mean? Okay. Like I've I've thought about before if I'm out in public and a fight breaks out and there are, there's a guy that's getting beaten down, I'm like Of course your natural instinct is to go stop the fight, to stop the violence, but you know, what if this guy just, you know, raped this guy's daughter or something and he's been running from him for three years and he just found him? I mean, what if this guy has his wife held hostage, locked in a trunk, and he's trying to save his wife's life and he's fighting this guy and you come in and save the bad guy on accident, you know? So getting involved in stuff like this, you really don't know what you're what you're getting involved with. Uh, you could end up yeah. helping helping the wrong person. If someone's running away and they go, stop that guy, and you kick him in the head and he falls over... And then the guys run up, they're in the mob, and they're like grabbing the guy and kidnapping him. And you're like, oh, great, now you're an accessory to a crime. You know, you thought you were stopping someone who snatched a purse, and you just helped a guy get kidnapped. You know, so um, I, I, I'm just kind of talking my way through it, and I, I got to say, I don't, I feel less compelled to kill a woman who is going to blow up um, a jail, a, a, a jail even though I still value the human life that is in there. Um, because not all of those crimes are punishable by death. She's definitely going to be killing some innocent people, statistically speaking. I honestly don't know how I would respond to that. I don't know that I would would kill her and stop that. I don't know. All right. That, yeah, that's that's fascinating. I didn't expect you to, to answer that way. So that that's interesting that you would do it to save an office building full of innocent workers, but you're not sure what you do with the with the jail so okay yeah f- fair enough I'm, I'm just sort of with this I'm, I'm sort of establishing anything that we might have in common and that sort of thing so, so my answer would be keeping things simple um, I'm, I'm not saying yes I, on both I'm, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it I'm saying I would be I mean look murdering someone killing someone is so much even if they are awful even if they are a you know, a terrorist who has done something terrible. It's not easy for a human to take another human life. So even in the office building situation, it would be by far the most agonizing, stressful, awful decision I've ever had to make. The same is true for her about to blow up the prison. But I find myself being slightly uh, more hesitant to kill her in this situation, because I'm being an analytical thinker, I'm going to be going, was she harmed by someone in the building? Does she need help? Is she trying to kill someone because, you know, 
they're about to get out of yeah. they're about to release a bunch of those guys and she knows they're going to go out and hurt other people like i would just be i would be thinking maybe i don't have enough information to make a decision in this i'm not the executioner i i don't know what's what she knows maybe i'm missing information you know what i mean but then you could say the same is true for the office building maybe that office yeah. building is filled with people who belong in prison and just haven't been caught yet how do i know you know what i mean so i exactly. this is it's tough to it's tough to gauge these things Okay, per- perfect. So that's a great answer. Thank you very much. That, that'll be helpful as we go later on. Um, okay, so third thought experiment, and I think you'll like this. So the, the thing I'm trying to test for here is, is it okay to kill based on having special knowledge? Um, so imagine that you are a I see where professor. you're going with this. Go ahead. You can see where I'm going. Okay, uh, yeah, very I good. See, I see. Um, you're a smart one, but uh, um, but yeah. So so let's say you're a history professor and you get uh, transported back in time to the year 1889. Um, you retain all your memories and, and knowledge from the future and everything like that. Um, but whatever process transported you there, you you have no way of demonstrating uh, to other people around you that you actually are from the future and you have knowledge of the future and that sort of thing. Now, you become aware that you have a rare opportunity because you are right, sitting right next, you're alone with um, little innocent baby Hitler. Um, now, my, my question is, forget about temporal effects. Don't, don't confuse yourself with, let's just pretend all else will be equal except that you take away the harm of World War II. And, again, you know, that's, again, you're I, asking I know, me I, to suspend so many facts. No, no, but... Pretend all of that is equal. No, no negative detrimental effects to time will take place if you kill this person or not. Just, you know, keep it keep it as simple. Um, do you kill innocent baby Hitler or not? And I'll give my my answer is yes. I say in eighteen eighty nine, there has been no Hitler yet. There has been no war. <laughs> So you're just an asshole killing a baby. Like, you're just, you know what I mean? To everyone else. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying, to everyone else. So you, you know, again, you have to think about uh, prison, right? Death penalty, things that may happen to you as a result of you killing this baby. Um, yep. And and are you removing other options, like being around yeah. in his life, uh, teaching him humanism instead of Catholicism? Maybe he won't need to be Hitler. Um, yeah, see. You have to kill him to prevent the World War II, or else everything will unfold as before. Really? That's the that, those are the only two options. I can't just be a a positive humanistic influence in Hitler's life and make him not an asshole. Well, no, because I'm trying to establish a a, a oh. point that'll be relevant to why I give my answer yes. So okay. I know it's tough, and and granted, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's not this simple. This is stupid it's not realistic at all but well i've got so yeah i've got so many things that i want to say because i know where you're going but i'm just going to play along i'm going to go along with it um and then we're going to talk about this as it relates to god and him asking you to kill your son Uh, but i'm going to be making notes along the way because there are some things i want to talk about uh but i suppose i suppose i would have to say at this moment if i'm removing all other options and and humanistic influence of young teenage Hitler and all sorts of other things. If I have to kill the baby in this particular situation, who is technically innocent in that moment, knowing what I know with special knowledge, knowing that it's going to save the lives of 6 million Jews and prevent a war. Yes, I would have to kill baby Hitler. 
Okay, cool. Well, awesome. Um, okay, last thought experiment on, on this uh, source before we move to the third source. Um, and Okay, so great. So same thing, um, only let's pretend you're not a time traveler, but you're actually Hitler's dad. Um, but you gain knowledge through a different mechanism. Say God reveals to you the, tr the future about what Hitler's going to do. You only have these two options. Uh, do you kill baby Hitler then or not? Hmm. That would be a lot tougher at being your own son. That would be like yeah. that would be like me getting knowledge right now that Talissa is going to grow up to be this tyrannical leader that's going to murder millions of people, and I go look at her right now in her room and go, "Hey, come here! I have to kill you." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> to save yeah, the lives yeah, yeah. of six million people or whatever. Yeah that that adds a that adds a unique dynamic. Um, and and you get the the point here is I I'm trying to see. Sure. So you've granted that special knowledge is it could be a justification for taking an innocent life. But yes. now I'm trying to determine, well, does the mechanism by which we receive that special knowledge matter? And my, my answer is no, but I, I want to see oh. how you answer in that sort of thing. Yeah, no, it absolutely matters, the mechanism by which we receive it. Because how do we know we're receiving accurate information? You can okay. call it knowledge because that's what it perceives to, you know, that, that's what it seems to be to you. But that doesn't yeah. mean it's real. You could be hallucinating. Like Andrea Yates believed Satan was coming for her children and she killed her five boys because of it. You know, if she was in the biblical times, she'd be rewarded like the grains on the sand or the grains of sand on the beach. You know, maybe she yeah. would have been some spiritual leader in the Bible. And, you know, in our world, she sits in prison in a psychiatric facility. Um, but, but bear in mind, though, remember, that's a factual difference. We're going to get to that later. This is just assuming you actually have knowledge, uh, but it was given to you. Sure. Yeah, morally perfect God or whatever. Trust me, listeners, those facts. listeners, hang in there because <laughs> I know you're pissed <laughs> off at me right now. Stick in there. Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna handle this later. Uh, yeah. Is, so, not good? You don't, is it taking too long? Or? Well, it's just you're. You know, it's like you've asked me to put on handcuffs and then go into a boxing ring with you and go, no, trust me, I'll let you hit me back in a minute. And there's just so many things stacking up that it's teetering on the absurd um, because I'm, you're constantly asking me to suspend facts, suspend facts, suspend fact. And at some point, conversations like that lead to absurdity. So I hope you're wrapping up soon because I want to get into this. I, um, but I sure, will. for sake okay. of the argument, Hitler's my kid. Um, I know for a fact he's going to kill 6 million people. You've removed all other options like me raising him differently, educating him differently, moving him out of Germany, um, being a humanist, teaching him about morals. I can't do anything differently. I either have to murder him or not. And killing him does not change anything else in history. All of these things I have to suspend. Fine. If I'm that handcuffed, sure. I kill my kid. Perfect. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. So, so let's move on then uh, to the third source. And this, I'm not going to bother asking you anything. So again, we're we're assuming the facts. Um, but I believe that there's actually a conflict between various principles. So this is this is part of my ac actual reason I give um, for for exempting the moral principle of life or life preservation. And it's because I think the, the principle of beneficence, uh, so doing positive good for other people, uh, and non-malfeasion, so do no harm to people. So 
uh, is a factor here. So what what does that mean? What what is uh, doing good for someone? And, and in this case, I think it's saving as many souls as possible, um, and and spare from the non-malfeasions, sparing as many souls as possible from going to hell and and going through the harm of that. And part of my answer is. What what would be a possible reason God would order us to to kill someone if if and it, I think it could be to save as many souls as possible because those principles in that context outweigh upholding the principle of life. So it, there's a moral justification based on trying to save as many souls uh, from damnation as possible. So uh, that's that's my answer to the third source of moral disagreement. This this is a factor as to why I give that answer so yeah that do you want to move on to the factual one or do you want to give your take on the moral hierarchy thing like i know that you're going to disagree yeah but how do you know you're saving more souls and and that sort of thing but is your is your answer to that is your answer to that last one essentially that that god would be telling you to kill your kid now while he's still innocent to save his soul and that he's going to do something later that's going to cause him to be a sinner not necessarily his soul, but it, it could be to save millions of souls in oh, the meaning, future. I mean, oh, meaning God yeah. knows ahead of time that your yeah. son is the baby Hitler, so God tells you to kill him to save six million in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, no, I'm fine with that. For now. Okay, cool. For now. <laughs> We're now okay. at your favorite part, the factual differences. So, mm. so yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. We, there, are, there are various facts that have to be assumed that... There is a, you know, we might disagree that there is a God, let alone a morally perfect one. Um, there could be disagreements. You might encounter Christians that disagree about the nature of Abraham's narrative and, and whether that's even instructive for us as Christians today. So I, I'm not that. I, I do believe Abraham's narrative is true. It's not an error. And it is, his example of faith is instructive. That's that's why I answer yes. So what I think you would really want to get to is, look, I've got this condition that I have to have 100% knowledge. Great, uh, you can use words, Dale, um, but how do you know that you know? And I, I think this is what you want to focus on. But yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Are there any, what are the facts that you want to t- discuss? Well, I think I get where you're going. This is fun for me. It's, a, it's an entertaining discussion. And, and I want to commend you on putting together some pretty interesting thought experiments. Thanks. I do want to tell you, though, I think you've made one massively fatal flaw in, okay. in the philosophy. So I hope that as you move forward, you drop this argument based on this conversation. Or find a way to repair this as you move forward. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I have someone on the show, we have a real... Uh, sort of intimate conversation about these things, they determine that an argument is no longer good, and then I hear them continuing to use it on other shows, on YouTube, saying no atheist has ever responded to this. Uh, Pastor Greg Locke did that to me. I mean, we had a debate. We went at it. He said there wasn't a single contradiction in the entire Bible. There wasn't a single error in the entire Bible. I had an entire episode with him where I took him from one side all the way through the other, he couldn't respond to most of what I was saying. He fumbled through the responses. He was like, I don't know how to respond to that. We get to the end of it. 
he tells me privately, he, there's no way he's going to connect me with Josh Fierstein because he goes, he said, uh, you'd destroy him. And I didn't want to, I wouldn't want to, I'd feel like I was throwing my friend to the lions. And then we finished that conversation, huge success for atheists. And pastor Greg Locke continues his spiel now on Facebook that not a single atheist has ever once answered a single contradiction and he continues with the same line of bullshit and it is so frustrating I ask him to come back on the show he won't even respond now he refuses but our episode is out there and I may actually replay that because it's more than 60 days old I may replay that for listeners coming up soon because it's one of my favorite takedowns of the Bible in general and of a very arrogant, cocky Christian mentality of not a single atheist has ever brought up a point, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, would I, never, I would never say that because I know firsthand atheists do. I've, I've had a lot of atheists coming back because right. this is something I've presented on, on my show and that sort of thing. Um, I, I will say this, though. I, I won't drop the argument unless you convince me that I'm wrong. And, okay. and that's not going to happen necessarily right here and now unless it's, it's obvious that I, I've missed something. But okay, I think it's I fairly will. obvious. So let's, let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot. Because okay. I think there is one major flaw. Okay. <clears throat> and rather than telling you what I believe your flaw is, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Sure. In every scenario that you gave me, you took facts away or asked me to suspend something for whatever reason. As as briefly as you can, answer me these questions as brief. I don't want to say yes or no or time you, but let's keep the answers super short. Okay. Why wouldn't I be allowed to raise Hitler differently? Um. So in reality, you wouldn't. Of course, all, all else wouldn't be equal. And that plays into... No, no, no. If I had knowledge of what he was going to do... Why couldn't I go? I'm moving him to France. My parenting is going to lead him this way. Let me raise him differently. Or why couldn't I, as an outsider, be a humanistic influence and say, I'm going to, I'm going to watch this kid his entire life, and I'm going to try to lead him in a way to be a, a governmental leader, but who is pushing humanism and leadership and positive values rather than a murderous rampage. Why did you remove those from me? Okay, so, so yeah, for, uh, put it this way. From our perspective, you could. Um, but from a God's eye, God's eye perspective, the reason I removed that as an option for you is because God, uh, God I believe in what's called Molinism. I, I don't know if, how much you know about that, but God, God's omniscient, obviously. Everyone knows that, right? And that includes facts pertaining to his middle knowledge. He knows what every free creature with libertarian free will would choose to do in every set of circumstances. Okay. All right. So but here's other, the, yeah. okay. So here's the, here's, here's the major flaw. Do you believe that God is all powerful? Yes. And you believe God has all knowledge? Yes. Okay. The major flaw that you that you have in your philosophical argument is in order for God to have to answer those questions the same way I do, or for you to have to answer those same those questions the same way I do, we have to put prerequisites on God. Meaning, meaning, there is no other way for God to fix Hitler 
besides murder. There is no other way for God to stop the building from blowing up except killing the woman who has a baby in her stomach. You're having to, you are having to lock God down with prerequisites. And as soon as you put prerequisites on someone, you're removing their label of limitless power. So when you put limitations on God, you're admitting that he's not all powerful. And if he's not all powerful, why are we calling him God? Salute to Epicurus. This is my, this is my problem with it. If God is all-powerful, he doesn't have to resort to murder. By you saying, yes, I will kill my son for you, you are acknowledging that he has prerequisites, that only killing your son is going to solve the problem, which means you're killing your son to serve a God that is not actually all-powerful, meaning He's not actually God. And even this Bible story in, in Genesis, I believe it's, is it 22, 1 through 19? Do I have that right? This, the testing of Abraham? Um, yeah. In Genesis 22, when it happens, the very reason God asks Abraham to do it is to prove that he loves him. And then whenever he ties Isaac up and he's about to kill him, God appears and goes, okay, don't do it. And what he says next is astonishing. He says, okay, now I know your love for me. Wait a minute. You're God. You didn't know before this? Abraham's love for you? You didn't know how this would pan out? You didn't have foreknowledge? So now you're not omniscient and there's no other way for you to have Abraham prove his love other than attempted murder of his child, which could have devastating psychological effects, a devastating relationship from father to son. And by the way, the entire fix for this is to sacrifice a ram, which is still pretty messed up. But that's just the that's just the side note in the story. By the way, a ram gets sacrificed. When we hear ram and sacrifice, we think satanic ritual. No, this was God's fix for not having to sacrifice a human child. This is Christianity. This is biblical theology. This is, this is Judaism that we're talking about here. This is God belief, not satanic worship. So to, to, to put those limitations on me with the woman who's going to blow up the building or the woman who's going to blow up the prison or killing baby Hitler, whether he's my child or uh, I'm a time traveler, However I obtained that knowledge, what you're telling me is God has prerequisites and the only way to accomplish this is by killing something innocent. And then I say, your God is either not all-powerful, which means he's not God, or he's a moral monster, which means he doesn't deserve worship. So it still fails. Okay, so so yeah, in, in response... so. I, I have heard this then, so I, I'm not going to be dropping my, my argument um, with, with all due respect. And what you say is absolutely correct. I do put prerequisites on God. Omnipotence means 
you know, it, it's, I believe in sort of the God of the philosophers. He is able to do all logically possible things. So it has to be something that he is able to do, and it has to be consistent with his other attributes and properties. So, for example, the Bible, the Bible does this too. God can't lie. Are you, are you saying I'm more powerful than God? I can tell a lie. Um, but that's not a maximal great being. A maximal great being, his omnipotence is, um, is li- it's the wrong word to use, but limited, I guess, by what is logically possible in, in light of you know, logical possibility and in terms of his other attributes combined. All right, well, so, let, me ask you, let me ask you something. Do you think God has ever seen someone who was on the wrong path and guided them in a different direction and they become a better person because of it? Uh, yeah. All right. Then that means God has the ability, the power, the foreknowledge to change the course of someone's life without murdering them. That means it would never be necessary to murder someone on behalf of God to save lives because God is powerful enough to save their life and the lives of the people they were going to hurt. So no, he, he's not. It, it's necessary. Everything that happens, if I eat a cookie, I, I believe in the butterfly effect. Everything that happens has to happen necessarily to achieve the ultimate end. So, so I believe in that we live in one of the two best possible worlds. So there's the po- logical possible world where God exists alone. Uh, and then there's the created world that he actually created. So if, if you picture like a multiple possible worlds, this is what philosophers call it, ways that things could have been. God could have chose world number one versus world number two. Only world number one produce, produces the end goal of saving as many souls as possible. Um, and the reason for that is because God, omnipotence doesn't mean you have control, you can't, force someone to freely choose something. If we have libertarian free will, God doesn't control that. I do. I make my own choices. I'm a prime mover in choosing to eat a cookie or not. And everything that happens is necessary to lead to the end goal. If you remove the fact that I ate a cookie today, that might mean six souls will not be saved or something like that. Um, I didn't eat a cookie, by the way, but... Um, murderer? So I, I you're a murderer, that's why. Necessary. You're a murderer. That's Sorry, why go you, ahead. You know, I said you're a murderer, that's why you didn't eat the cookie. If you didn't eat the cookie, you just saved all those souls. It was a joke, uh, Dale. <laughs> it's You're cutting out, so I can't... Oh, no, I, you said if I ate the cookie, all these souls would be saved, and then you said I didn't eat a cookie, by the way, and I said because you're a murderer. Okay, you are a smart cookie. <laughs> um, I always find jokes yeah, jokes get better the more you have to explain them. It's a, it's a that's a, there you go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, it's, I just didn't hear you. It was sort of like choppy on your end there for a second. But gotcha. all right, okay. But but yeah, so that's my answer. I do believe that everything has to happen to achieve the ultimate goal. I, I don't believe there is but, a better world. No, but, um, but Dale, but if, Dale, if, I, I feel like you're contradicting yourself a bit, and I want to have you address this before we go to the Patreon-only section. Okay. When I asked you if someone's life had been bad and God guided them in a way to make their life better, you said, yes, you believe that's happened. And I would say that's consistent yeah. with a Christian worldview. That someone prays or whatever, and God sees that they need it, and he, he 
guides them in a different direction. Okay, that makes sense. So that means God can make you better than you were going to be without killing you. So having a father tie his son up and stab him to death is never necessary because God can just make that person better. No, though, because he, God, through his middle knowledge, he, he's omniscient, right? He knows that change, God sets up the circumstances, in effect, when he cr- chooses to create right. this world. So that includes everything, the, the best possible world. The, one of the factors was, oh, in March 5th of 2018, God will uh, move to make Dale's life better, or David Smalley's life better. Um, without that cir- circumstance, less souls would have been saved, and that's why God didn't create that world to begin with, and he created the world Right, but again, did. okay, but again, you're putting limits on him, because he could, if he is God, he could alter that, that baby Hitler's life, make him a better person, without the need to kill him. That That could be the world that God alters. No, he can't, because if he did, let, let's say he did that, um, it could be the fact, and I believe it is, the fact that less souls would be saved. Okay, but that's, but, the, um, but again, hold on, hold on. God could, just cre- God could just make it so that that doesn't happen. He could make no, more he, souls be saved if Hitler turns out to be a good person. He could have made Hitler a preacher who converted six million Jews to Christianity instead of killing them. No, he can't. So, so here's, what? Then why do you worship why, him? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Then why do you worship him? Because it sounds like you're worshiping a demigod. Well, no, I, I, it's a it's a perfection for an omnipotent being not to be able to control people's free will choices, which is a a factor um, in an overall factor in terms of the outcome. No, the, no, no, no. But, but hold on. Utility. Changing their, forcing their, forcing them to make decisions against their free will is different from changing their spirit and making them not want to be that person. So he, just like he hardened the heart of the Pharaoh in Exodus so that the Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go and then started killing the firstborn in the neighborhood until the Pharaoh conceded, he could just unharden the heart of the Pharaoh. He could have just unhardened Hitler's heart and allowed him to be a better person that converted more souls. And, I mean, look, you and I can talk through this in a matter of minutes and conceive of better worlds in which more people become saved, more people become better, more souls are saved, and six million Jews don't die in horrific conditions. You and I can conceive them with our puny human brains. You're telling me that God is incapable of making a world in where our imaginations have have been able to solve some of these problems? So then I these, don't think we, we can. Um, we just did. You, you point out to this, uh, this in the complexity of my, remember my examples, the pregnant woman, and you're like, yeah, but there's so many other things and factors that could be involved. Well, it's the same thing here. I mean, if we took out World War II, who knows what the consequences, can you tell me what would happen Let's even say the future, 500 years from now, what causal chains come about Dale. and that influence people's free will choices. We, we can't know that, oh, yeah, if you take away World War II, the world will be roses and 
people are going to be converting because we got Hitler the preacher. It, it may be that 200 years after the fact, we have more soul, you know, with, without the trauma of World War II. Maybe that played a, a good role. We'll, we'll oh never have God. another world war or something. We don't know. Dale, um, Dale, what man, be very careful, because what you're saying now is that it must have been a good thing that six million Jews died because God figured out a way or God needed that to happen in order to save more souls. It sounds like you're okay with worshiping a God that's going to trade six million Jews' lives and allow them to be tortured and killed in the worst thing in humanity, the Holocaust, for some greater good. That just That is just disturbing, man. Yeah. First of all, thank, thank you for you know, being concerned and, and stuff like that and giving me a, a pause for thought. Um, but as bad as it sounds, yes, that, that is what I believe. I, I do think there is the greater good of, of saving more souls and sparing less people from damnation that overrides it. It's more important than preserving six million earthly lives. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's a difference on the moral hierarchy that, that we might have that accounts for why you say no, why I say yes. But, um, yeah, for, for better or worse, that is what I believe. Wow, man. That's, I, I'm, I'm not sure what to say. I, I think that what you're doing is you're, you're, so I think that's where the confirmation bias comes in is that you're assuming that God exists and you're assuming that that God is morally perfect. Therefore, anything that happens, a child gets raped, you go, huh, there's got to be a good reason behind it. God said so. And then you just, you have these blinders on to go, any horrific thing that happens, there's going to be a good thing behind it. Someone goes, well, but this woman was captured and raped in a tent for 18 years. And you go, yeah, praise God. God allowed it. God watched it. God knew it needed to happen. This woman needed to be raped for 18 years and, and, and to have children with her captor and to be held in a tent in a backyard. This is a true story, by the way. It happened to J.C. Dugard. That she, and you're going, yep, she had to. Praise God. There's a good thing behind it. God needed her to be raped multiple times over 18 years, starting as a child so that he could have something good happen in the future. What kind yeah. of what kind of puny worthless god needs a rape to consistently happen over 18 years and to have a child abducted and held in a tent in order for him to do something good later on? What kind of puny god needs 6 million Jews to die for something else good to happen that he couldn't have made happen without those Atro atrocious crimes and why would you worship something like that so it's because it's a god that is bound by the laws of logic uh which is a, a greater god than you know imagining that the logical law of non-contradiction can be violated or something like that it i don't that's i'm 100 percent convinced that such a god that can just violate the laws of logic isn't possible um, so there are those necessary constraints because God can't control free will. It, it would be a God that would intervene, um, in that way and result in less souls being saved just to spare as horrific as it is. I, I want to 
it's not a good thing. This is not the moral ideal. It's not like God is sitting up there smiling and laughing, yeah, get raped or something like that. Um, obviously, we that's not what the ideal is. We live in a fallen world. According to him, though. Oh, listen, listen. Right. This, this falls apart, Dale, because in your belief... God is a player on the field, and he's also the referee, he's also the commissioner, and he's also the creator of the game. So in your world, to break this down to a sports analogy, the referee is on the football field playing the game, and he goes, hey guys, if you step out of bounds, we have to chop your foot off. And they go, uh, someone steps out of bounds on accident, and he goes, I didn't mean to do this. Sorry, I have to chop your foot off. Hey, how about... How about you just make that not the rule? How about you just go five yards back if you step out of bounds? How about you just lose the ball? How about something simple just... Ha- you're the referee, and you created the game, and you're the commissioner in charge of it, and you're on the field playing with us. How about you act like you're... How about you stop acting like you're powerless, and you have all these limitations on your power? No, we don't have to set someone on fire if they miss a field goal. You made that rule up, God. You you made it so that you forced us to play, first of all. We don't even want to be on this field. And then you made me the kicker, and now if I miss a field goal, you're going to set me on fire? And you go, sorry, can't mess with free will, bro. You decided to kick the field goal. Yeah, because I was told if I didn't, I was going to be drowned in the... Kool-Aid or in the in the Gatorade. So my, my options are be drowned in the Gatorade according to your rules or kick this field goal and if I miss it I get caught on fire. Like you're creating this absurd game for me that you're playing and that you're in charge of and every time one of your absurd rules gets broken and someone has this a- astonishingly grotesque punishment you go, "Sorry, bro, free will." No, you at any moment God has the ability to change the rules. God has the ability to say, I'm going to let Hitler live, but I'm going to change his heart so that he makes better decisions and six million Jews don't die. I'm going to make whatever the positive thing that was going to come out of J.C. Dugard's repeated rape, I'm going to have that happen without this, this young girl being abducted from her parents and tortured. And any God who can't make those things happen without watching this child be raped is not a God that's worthy of worship. He can't make okay. simple positive stuff happen without watching people torture and suffer. That's not a God that is morally sound, Dale. Okay, so, so let me respond this way, because this is, again, this is something I, I've thought about. So put it this way, given that God chooses to create... God does not create the rules. They necessarily are what they are. He doesn't have a choice uh, to prevent the rape or whatever. However, you are correct in that, well, God has a choice to create in the first place. Why didn't he just exist in the possible world where it's God alone that exists? Um, And here, I do believe God made a conscious choice uh, to create a world. So why on earth would God create a world with all of that bad stuff when it could have just, you know, moral perfection? It's just God by himself, right? My answer to that is because there are... I, I don't like using the word utility, so I'm not a, exactly a utilitarian, but it's the best word I know how to say. So the reason I say there are two best possible worlds is because both the, the created world that we actually exist in and the world where it's just God existing alone 
have an equal utility. Now, how on earth could that be if there's all these negative detriments of people being raped, of, uh, you know, I, I heard you giving examples of babies uh, burning in cars and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, these are detriments. So obviously a, guy, a good God couldn't create but you're forgetting about the benefits, the amazing benefits that could outweigh people getting saved, people having the joy of having a kid. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you were thrilled when you had your, your daughter and that sort of thing. So there, there are also the benefits that have to be weighed against the detriments. And overall, all things considered, the actual world, I think, is equal to the equal utility, whatever you want to say, to, to the world where God exists alone. And this is why it's morally acceptable for God to create, despite the fact that there are detriments. Okay, I, I don't want to stop with this. I want to keep pushing on it, because I want to know your thoughts on, and don't have to answer now, but I want to know your thoughts on heaven, and if there's free will in heaven. Because if God removes our free will in heaven, then... Are we just robots in heaven or are we, does our heart just change? Is he messing with our free will or do we have free will in heaven and we're able to trip each other and stab each other and rape and pillage and kill and all sorts of other things in this alleged paradise? I want to keep pushing on this because I think we can make progress on it. I think you're a smart guy. I don't think you mean to, 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 to be defiant, but when you started talking about things being God violating the laws of logic... Let's dive into that. Let let's do that on the other side. And I and I want to I want to get into that. I want to talk about this this principle that you have. And I what I would call it's not even necessarily a principle of life. It's a principle of undue harm without justification. Like, are you telling me that this girl has to be raped in order for something positive to happen, or are there just things that happen and God goes, sorry guys, that's your free will? Like, is he really not? in control and you also seem to be saying like that god created this world that happened and like it's almost like he can do nothing about it now but i go no he's actively involved he can make he can change an election he could fix a pothole he could cure the common cold he could turn lights green to get you to work on time he could delay a train so that you can cross the bridge or he can not delay the train if you're on the train to make like he has active access to our lives on a daily basis. And to say he doesn't is to further limit his power. So there's still so much more I want to get into. Um, but we do it for the folks who support the show at patreon.com slash David C. Smalley. Everything else is going to be on the other side of that. Uh, Dale, stick around with me for the patrons. Okay, bud? Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, everybody else, drive like you know each other. All right, there's no pretty music back into this one, man. This is this is for the patrons. They want to get to the brass tacks. They don't care about all the production stuff. Um, so, what what is your response to what I just kind of ran through there for a second? You can you can talk about any piece of what I just said, and anything that you don't address, I'll try to I'll try to get into. Okay, um, like you mean just for you, or we're we're recording now? Oh yeah, no, we're 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 back to recording. I just I, I want to get your take on what I just said right before I ended the show. Okay. All right. Cool. So, so the thing that I remember. So, in terms of heaven, that was the first thing you asked about. Um, so, in the first place, yes, there are some Christians. Um, like I think Catholics believe this that the soul it crystallizes in a way. So, once you reach the point of no return or or death, whatever it is, you you're you're stuck in that that state. In other words, you have no free will. 
I don't believe that. I, I believe that we do retain libertarian free will, and it's not fair to say in heaven, in the state, the final state of salvation, right? The, the new heavens and new earth or whatever. Um, so yeah, we, we retain a dual ability. We can, uh, we can do something, we can sin or not sin. Uh, it just so you can, hold on. The case so you, you can sin in heaven. You can, but you won't. Okay. God, God reveals there will be no sin in heaven, so it's it's just that no one's going to sin. And this is part of the answer as to why, when I say a logical possible world, it's not just this universe or whatever. That possible world includes the pre-fall state, uh, it, it includes the fall of Satan, it includes uh, the after the after state, right? The, the new heavens and the new earth. This is all one logical, the same logical possible world. So going through this this sin disease we we had a chance not to sin or to sin when adam and eve ate the fruit and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing um they chose to do it so we have to go we are we're infected with the sin disease that's the way i i see it as more like a disease and jesus offers us the cure and it may be that only going through going through that um do we reach a state where we will never choose to sin um, again if we have that antidote, uh, so to speak? Well, okay, hold on. R- right there. Is is God doing something to us to make us not want to anymore? In in the final state? Yes. Like what changes? Uh, no. what, what, so changes it, in, what changes in my heart when I get to heaven that makes me not want to do any of those bad things? So it actually starts here on, on earth. When you convert, the, the Holy Spirit indwells, indwells within you, and that provides sort of like a seed, as I see it, of, of Christ-like behavior. And through sanctification, that grows. You become more and more Christ-like. Um, and that fully blossoms. Once, once you reach heaven or, or the state of salvation, you've got this fully Christ-like um, this Christ-like character, so you won't want to sin. You won't choose to sin. In the same way Jesus, he had free will. He could have sinned or not sinned, and that some people think that's contradictory or, or controversial as well, because how does that reckon with his divine nature and that sort of thing? But, so so why didn't, uh, why didn't God just create the world as you're describing heaven? He In couldn't. A, he couldn't? It, it, that's what I'm saying. This, this prior, these prior states... Are, are factually necessary. So it, it, it's Adam and Eve with the fall and that sort of thing. They could have they could have chose to obey God, and in that case, it wouldn't. We would have went to the final state, so to speak. But they chose to sin. So now we are in this. We have this sin disease. We have to go through the motions to get to get purged of it. It's a necessary consequence. Well, but hold on. But Dale, God could have created a world that didn't have the temptation of the fruit. And everyone had the hearts that they're going to have in heaven. Meaning sin is available. It's an option to punch each other. Just nobody ever wants to. No, but he he couldn't. God can't control or determine people's free will choices. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a compatibilist where, oh, our choices are fully determined by our prior desires and, and stuff like that. I, I'm a prime mover. This is what libertarian 
free will is. I, I have a dual ability to do or not to do. Um, whereas determinists will deny that or compatibilists will no, deny I get that. No, just... I get it. But you do believe that in heaven, there are people walking around right now who have the ability to do bad and choose not to, right? Yep. So God could have created earth that way with no temptation of the fruit, with no serpent, with no talking serpent in the ear of Eve, with no convincing, with no temptation, no tree even exists. There's no reason to even tempt man with the tree of this fruit. Why, why just remove the tree? The Garden of Eden is perfect. It's heaven on earth. Sure, we have the ability. I have, an, I have a hand. You have a neck. I could walk up and poke you in the throat. I have the ability. I never have the desire to do so. Create heaven on earth. Everyone is fine. Why couldn't he have just done that? He, well, he did. He didn't create them with a desire to, to sin. They, they didn't have that desire, actually. They, they, they had to have. Whenever he said, sure, Dale, or otherwise, otherwise there would have been the, the serpent. It would have just been, hey, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because you'll have more knowledge. If they had no desire for more knowledge and they had no desire to sin, they would have just been like, so we don't need anything else. We have no desire for it. And the serpent no, would have. That. They have free will. That, that's the point. They, they could have for no people. Free will says there's a crazia, there's a phenomenon known as a crazia. You can make choices uh, through a weakness of the will, um, and that's what happened with the fall. They, they weren't created with an inclination. That's, that's the curse of the fall. I'm born with a sinful inclination. I, I don't believe in the original sin doctrine in the sense that I'm born guilty of, of sinning, but I am born with a sinful inclination. There's this influence to sin, and then I'm guilty once I actually do it, once I do a sin. But, yeah, so, so in terms of the circumstances, pretend God takes away the snake and no tree, uh, haha, I guess everything's good. No, because, they again, they have free will, and the sin or disobedience could have taken another form. I, I actually don't take the, the Genesis story literally. That's one of the areas I think is a Bible error that, that I told you. I'm not an inerrantist. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, they could have sworn at God. They, they could have found another way to sin against God, and then, whoops, we're, we've got the sin disease and that sort of thing. Which means that could still happen in heaven, in your belief, right? There is no tree, but someone in it heaven could. could tell God to piss yeah. off, right? And, 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 and uh, you also believe in Lucifer, right? Who was an angel and turned yeah. against God without a tree before the fall, right? Exactly, yeah. That's, that's my point. Okay, so, so, like, so hold on. So, so Lucifer turned against God... And was evil before there was ever a fall. That means evil existed in the world before Adam and Eve. Yes. So Adam and Eve aren't responsible for the fall. Yes, they are, because it depends what the fall is, right? But creation is linked to human beings. Human beings have a special place, even above angels, as being bearers of God's image. Uh, that's why the, the creation falls with us, and we have to be corrected first, um, and that sort of thing. So human beings are actually more important than angels, um, is my understanding. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. No, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so back on what we were talking about uh, a few moments ago, before the 
before the, the, the podcast portion was over. D- this piece of... I'm really fascinated by this idea that you worship a God who has prerequisites or limitations on his power. That is fascinating. And I, I keep saying it in different ways. And I I just... I want to make sure I'm being completely understood. So... I want to go by Rappaport's rules for a moment, which is simply that you, I want, I want to play this game where we flip sides because I, I'm okay. going to fail at this. I can't do it. I can't articulate your position. And in order to try okay. this, I want you to articulate mine. Can you tell me what you believe my argument is regarding you worshiping a God that has prerequisites and as far as I'm concerned, is therefore disqualified from being a god if he has prerequisites. So can you just state my argument back to me in a way that I would agree with it before we move on? Sure, let, let me try. So, so yeah, if, basically the way you're seeing it, you, you see God's omnipotence as being somehow in conflict with other attributes that he has and based on external facts in the world, like people getting raped and that sort of thing. So... You see that, okay, in order to be omnipotent, this means all-powerful. He, he has to be able to do anything and everything, and, and like he can make one plus one equals three, possibly. Or, or can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? My answer is no, because he's, he's limited to the laws of logic. You would see this, okay, but that's a limitation. That's, that's taking away from God. Uh, let, me pause, let me pause you right there. I think that is just a bullshit challenge that atheists do. That's logically impossible. That can't even be fathomed. That doesn't make any sense. If you can, th- yeah. that's, this, that's this cyclical thing that is just a little absurd. So I wouldn't go there. And anytime atheists do that, I just go, I think what they're pointing out is the logical impossibility of something being omnipotent. Having okay, so having great. all powers, uh, having all powers in itself is logically impossible because eventually the power to do something will outweigh the power to stop that thing. And so having having endless or infinite powers is impossible for that reason, for the reason why that that question irritates me. Can you create a rock so big you can't lift it? Well, that that just proves that the idea of something being all-powerful is, is absurd. Be- beautiful. I, I could not have said it better myself. And it's the same with other facts, like omniscience. Uh, God doesn't have any experiential knowledge of what it's like to be a sinner or to tell a lie. I, I have knowledge that God doesn't. Um, this is not a, a diminishment of him. This is a perfection actually, even though an atheist might go, but that's that's limiting God's omniscience. Are you saying, I have experiential knowledge that he doesn't? Yes, yes. It's not logically, in the same way it's not a logical question to ask, can God lift a, a thing? It's not logical to ask, can God have experiential knowledge of what it's like to sin? And also, in this case, what I'm saying is that his other attributes, his omnibenevolence, it, it cannot... Um, is, is what trumps the omnipotence. It, it, it What makes God not... It's not a logical question to ask, can God force a free will agent to do something or, or not do something? Because he's omnibenevolent, okay. that takes precedence. Yeah. 
Okay, I, I, I interrupted you when you were trying to state my position, and I apologize. Let, let, let me just try it this way. Let me just see something. Was I, was I right, more um, or less? Or? Well, no, I, I had to stop you because uh, of the, 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 the logical impossibility of him lifting a rock or making a rock too big for himself to lift, and, and then we got sidetracked. So before okay. I let you go back to that, let's just do this. In the specific instance of, say, J.C. Dugard, who was raped... Or captured as a child. I think she was she was captured when she was like eleven. <clears throat> and she was held until God, I don't remember how old she was when she was let go. It was an awful story. Are you familiar with the story? I'm not, no. Okay. Uh, she she was she was kept in a tent in the backyard of this guy's backyard and she was raped repeatedly and uh, uh, she fathered two children with her captor. And she finally escaped or someone found her and went over there and, and got her out. And the guy who did it's in prison or whatever. Um, okay. But for 20 years or 18 years, she was held captive. Now, we can just say that name, that, that phrase, that 18 years. We can say JC. We can talk about her kids. But day in and day out of just being beaten and raped and held against your will at 11 years old from your parents. I mean, the anguish of the parents day in and day out, not knowing where their child is. The father, I mean, it it hurts me to know when my daughter was on an airplane flying by herself and she was asked if she wanted something to drink and she said no because she thought she had to pay for it. She didn't realize they were going to give free sodas on the plane. And she said no to a drink because she didn't have any money. That made me feel like a terrible father for either not preparing her for that or making sure she had money so that she felt comfortable. I felt awful that she was in that situation. And I still, that was several years ago. It's been resolved. We had a laugh about it. When I think about that moment, I still am just riddled with guilt that my daughter went through a three and a half hour flight without drinking anything because she was afraid she was going to have to pay for something. That's, I feel terrible that I didn't better prepare her for that. I could not imagine not being able to find her, not knowing where she is and trying to go to sleep at night. And moving on with my life at some point, day in and day out. And to know that she is alive and she's being held as a sex slave and being raped repeatedly a few miles from my home. This is just absolute torment, Dale. For the parents, for the child, the only good guy who knew about it. Actually, I'm not even going to say good guy. The only two people, the only two entities that knew this was happening was the guy raping JC and your God. And he watched. And he was present. He was in the tent and did nothing to stop it for eight years he was also present with the mother and father who were on their knees crying out for help who were anguished who were anxiety ridden who were suicidal who were 
I will rip this guy's face off if I find him, who were, he was with the search parties of people walking around, did nothing to guide them to where she was. Your God, the one you worship, watch the people walk by the home and, and never directed them, didn't change the heart of the captor to set her free. Never. Your God was with the anguishing parents. Your God was with the girl being raped. Your God was with the rapist. Your God was with the search party. He was with the police officers who were failing to track her down. He was with the investigators. He was in all of the churches where she was prayed for. Your God. Are you telling me that he needed this to happen? For something else good to happen? Did he have well, to have it, this as it, a prerequisite? Yeah, it's so obviously this in the first place, God's heart is broken at these things. These are awful things that are taking place. He's not happy about them. Take, you know, any sin, whether you tell a, lie, a minor lie uh, or you're, you know, doing these horrific things that you're examples that you're. Okay, but up. you 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 believe oh, that God I, has you believe God has the power to stop it though, right? Yeah, and you believe uh, he's in, in the and in you believe he's in the room. You believe he's in the uh, room watching it happen too. Factors. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. And and you believe he's in the room watching it happen, right? I I believe that he uh, he's omniscient, so he knows uh, the fact that you know that those are. Do you believe true he's and, Do you believe he's omnipresent? But, yes. So he's present uh, by, in the by, room in the tent. He's there. Um, well, he, he's cognitively aware and causally active at every place in the universe. So he, he could have done something, yes. I okay, so okay, so so this could go a lot of different directions, so I don't want to ask an open-ended question. I'm going to ask yes or no questions, not to trap you, but to get a clear, concise, quick answer. Sure. Did God need that rape to happen in order for something else positive to happen? Yes. Okay. Wow. Oh, do you want me to explain? Or? Uh, well, no. I need a yes or no. Okay, yeah. I just am just shocked that that's the case. Um, because it's... Yeah, like, there are cases where the police, in a hostage situation... Um, they have the power to do something. Like they can bust in there and start shooting up. But if they do that, uh, or say say the hostage is like mistreating some of the hostages and and beating them and stuff like that, and and the cops are there and they're in a position they have the power to bust in there and and shoot him and that sort of thing. But by doing so, they might risk a couple of hostages being being killed. So instead they, they sit there and try to negotiate. It's like saying, right. well, the cops are just sitting there watching. No, but um, Dale, but Dale, I'm sorry, man. No, that, that again, those are fallible human people who can make mistakes. Your God is not supposed to be that. He, he doesn't recklessly shoot. He doesn't have to fire blindly. He could snap his fingers and have the captor have a heart attack. 
He can soften the heart of the captor, win his soul, reveal himself as the one true God, turn that person into a Christian, and have him save everybody who's there. So, so to compare so God... My point is, no, he, he can't do that. If why? he did that, tell me what, what would happen. What would be the, tell me all of the cons, causal consequences. If God did that, let's pretend he, he snapped his fingers and the hostage taker had a heart attack. And everyone was saved, and great, we had a, a great day. Um, tell me all of the causal things that come about based on that for the next 20 years. Just 20 years. Whatever um, God wants to happen. This is what my point to you. God is not subject to unknowns. He has all possible knowledge and all possible power. So nothing is going to blindside God like a stray bullet. If he snaps his fingers and that captor falls with a heart attack and everybody gets to leave out of the building, what, what bad thing happens there? If there, is, if there is something else bad that might happen because that guy had a heart attack, God can fix that too if he's truly powerful and omniscient. There's nothing too big for God that he's like, if oh, he's well... Trying to, he, he, he can't if he's trying to save as many souls as possible, because this is a free will. The, the human plays an element. They, they have to meet certain conditions and that sort of thing. So if his end goal is to save as many lives as possible, he could intervene. I mean, he does in the Bible. He does intervene on certain occasions. Through his omniscience, he knows, right. okay, this is a, a good time for me to slaughter Israel's enemies or to uh, have a global flood or to interact and, and hold the sun still or something like that. So that Yes, God yeah. can interact, but the reason he doesn't interact at all times is because he knows when it's appropriate uh, and when it's not appropriate to act in order to bring about um, something that he doesn't totally control, bringing, uh, having as many free creatures as possible choose to place their faith and repent and, and be saved. Um, and we have, we as human beings have no way, you, you have no way, you're, you're the skeptic, I, the way I see this, this is an objection, this is a negative evidence. The skeptic is claiming, look, this, this God is immoral or this God is false uh, if, they're, if they're ordering you to do this. Therefore, you are making a claim, you bear the burden of proof. You have to prove that in order for me to accept that, yeah, God's immoral, you would have to prove that there is no, that less souls would be saved as a result of you know, God giving that hostage taker a heart attack as opposed to the world where he just sits back and does nothing. No, wait, why, why do you get to just assume that more souls will be saved and that God is good? And that's not considered a claim that you have to prove. Great question. So, so yeah, this, this relates to the... Um, I was on a show called Ask an Atheist Anything as a, as a guest, and we were discussing what, when does the atheist bear the burden of proof? Um, so... I'm very strict, and I try my best to be very consistent and systematic on this. I, I think it's obvious who, whoever makes a claim bears the burden of proof. So I, I could present a claim that I think more souls will be saved and that sort of thing. I can't prove that. I'm in no position to prove that. But in the context of your hypothetical scenario, I'm just suggesting this as a mere possible, uh, equally possible option, a defeater. It could... You know, if you're saying, no, God should have gotten involved and given that hostage take or heart attack, I'm saying, well, how do you know? Maybe more souls might be saved 
as a result, and that trumps. Right. Well, but you um, have no evidence that that is the case. But you're using that as right. fuel to prop up your confirmation bias that there is a good God who allowed something horrific to happen. And then I think that 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 theodicy is what it's called, by the way, where you prop something up as a potential answer without evidence. When you offer this theodicy, it it just pacifies your confirmation bias. It uh, it it avoids you having to deal with the possibility that that doesn't exist. You go, well, it's, it's possible. It might. And if you want atheists want to make a claim that that's not the case, you have the burden of proof. That's not, that's not the way intellectual arguments go. You don't get to make something up as a potential, but say it's not a claim. And then the atheist goes, you don't have proof that he's going to save a bunch of souls. Why don't you deal with the fact that this makes your God a monster? You get to go, well, are you claiming that God is a monster? Then you must have evidence for that. We go, fine. There's an entire thing called the Old Testament that proves he's a monster. Let's go through them. If every time you were just going to respond with maybe more souls won, maybe more souls won because of the Holocaust, maybe more souls won. Every time someone is raped, five more angels get their wings. And you come up with these ridiculous, absurd theodicies that maybe something wonderful is happening because of this ter- there's this terrible thing that God made happen. I, I don't know how anybody could ever convince you of anything, because no matter what someone says to you, you're, I'm just going to go, well, seven kids burned up in a church fire. What do you do with that? Um, well, maybe 10 more children had their souls won in China. How do you know that? I'm just saying it's possible. It, it, it never leads to anything realistic, Dale. It just leads to absurdity because you're propping up a theodicy without calling it a claim. So you get to have an argument to pacify your confirmation bias without ever needing to bring evidence to the table. Yeah, well, I, I think that's correct, though. Like that That's my understanding. I, I'm providing an undercutting defeater um, to the skeptic's claim, and that that's fine. If we're interested in truth, I mean... Let's let's flip this. The Kalam cosmological argument. If I if I'm a Christian, I'm making a claim that this proves God exists. That, or just taking premise number two, the universe began to exist. I'm making a claim that I I can prove that, and I point out evidences. You know, we got CMB, we've got the redshift, and all the skeptic has to do is they can point to an eternal cosmological model as an equal possibility. And if I can't prove that's improbable, uh, or that my thing is um, more probable than not, then that defeats my claim. I, I need to grapple with that. It's not on the skeptic to then prove that, you know, some cosmological model is true, um, unless they're claiming this is actually the case. Well, but the um, difference there, though, Dale, is that your claims with God, meaning God needed J.C. Dugard to be raped for 18 years in order for something good to happen, you have no evidence for that. You have nothing... You have no. You have offered nothing to me, to tell me what what good thing can come of that that God couldn't do without J.C. being raped. Can you give me an example? So I don't. So in terms of the the cosmological evidence for with the eternal models, quickly, right? They they can't prove that's true on a balance of probabilities. They can perhaps suggest plausibilities that it's a plausible or equally possible theory. So I think I could do the same with my Molinistic defeater. I, I could say, look, it, it's, uh, yeah, with the, I call this my Molinistic defeater. There, there are ways that the skeptic bearing the burden of proof can attack and say that, well, that's improbable. You could try and argue 
that it's more probable than not God doesn't exist, um, or that it's more probable than not that humans don't have free will or something. And and then this. Well, I, I, skeptic, I but I asked for an example though. Do, do you have an example of? What good could come of J.C. being raped for 18 years and held away from her parents as a child that God needed that atrocity to happen in order for some random good thing to happen? Can you give me an example of what good thing would come of that that would not that God would not be able to do without the rape? Um, in, that I can prove or just as a possibility, you mean? Well, I would like to know if there's one you could prove for sure. I'm assuming that's an obvious no. So I guess we have to go to a possibility. Um, yeah, because I just haven't, I don't know the situation. But like, yeah, like there are good things do come about from bad things sometimes, right? That there's proof of, of that uh, that might not justify the bad thing happening. But um, there there are consequences of a bad thing happening that could lead to a good thing, right? That you would admit that that much happens, right? Like maybe I, I, I run a red light and get a ticket and get pulled over and I'm like, geez, I'm going to be late for work. And then, um, I, I, you know, by the time I get there, it sounds like a bad thing, but in good thing is, um, you know, uh, there was a bomb that blew up a pregnant woman, pressed the button to a bomb and David Smalley didn't, uh, shoot to protect the woman or something like that. So, that could be a good thing that comes about as a result of the bad thing of getting the ticket. So I, I think I can prove that good things can follow bad things. Only if, only if fallible humans that with limited power are interacting. As soon as you introduce God into the mix, none of this makes sense. Introducing God creates thousands of more questions, Dale. It only makes sense if if God is evil and needs rape to happen in order for other things to happen. That is a disgusting game that your God created. And if your God isn't powerful enough to make good things happen without that rape, then he's not a God and he's certainly not morally perfect because he would be able to create good things without using rape as a prerequisite. Do you understand the conundrum that you're in? So here, here's a good thing to say that. So I could say, how do you know? And this leads into one of the, the main factual differences. How, I would just say to you as a skeptic making that claim, how do you know that there, there is no possible justification for, for that rape? Um, I'll give you an example where my Molinistic defeater, I don't think it does work. Um, so I, my moral conscience is, I am 100%, I have 100% knowledge through my moral conscience that torturing innocent babies for fun, even if that would lead to saving more souls, is immoral. So it, th- this is why I say I'm not exactly a utilitarian. It, it's not necessarily the case but that doing a, um, yeah, that as long as a good end is achieved, that, that justifies anything. No, I don't believe that. But in the case of killing, I think there are cases where it's justified to take someone's human life. That, that was part of the point. Dale, um, I feel like you're missing. I, I think that the, the feedback on this show is going to be that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be rude to you right now. I'm trying to tell you ahead of time the feedback you're going to get is that you're talking around 
the conversation, that you're avoiding dealing with the true problem. And I don't want you to be accused of that because I, I don't want you to have any regrets. So I'm going to go ahead and say what I think the listener is going to type below this show in Patreon. And I want you to have the ability to respond now. I'm being very, very straightforward with this. Saying, yes. saying that God needs this girl to be raped and kidnapped from her parents. And I mean, you're saying either God has massive limits on his power or God is evil and uses rape to make other things happen. Neither one of them make him worthy of worship and quite possibly rule him out from even existing. So this is what I want you to address. And you keep going back to people doing things that lead to other things happening. I, I'm not talking about fallible humans who are going to make mistakes. I'm talking about an omniscient, omnipresent omnipotent God that you worship as morally perfect now being in the situation of the bomb, the girl's going to push the button and she's going to kill all the people. God doesn't have the limits that I do. God doesn't need to use a gun. God could literally turn that detonator into a gummy bear and save everybody's lives. He doesn't have to play by our rules. He's God. There are tons of times in the Bible where he is noted as defying the laws of logic. Defying the laws of physics. Uh, making... I, don't, I don't think the former. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. He never violates the laws of logic. Well, I mean, well, some could argue that the very existence of something that has all the powers in the world is logically impossible proven by the fact that he cannot create a rock that's too big for himself to lift. That is logically impossible for someone to have all of the powers because the powers are going to ultimately contradict one another. Mm-hmm. That's one simple uh, example. Exactly. But that that's what I'm... I, I, I'm trying my best to answer this directly. I, I thought I did. I, I am saying that there's there is a logical contradiction because it's not just omnipotence. That's not the only factor. It's It's omnibenevolence and that sort of thing. And it, God, okay, put it this way, God is a maximally great being. He has to achieve, in order to be a being worthy of worship, he has to achieve the maximal uh, level of, of greatness that's possible, that's logically possible, right? Say that again? So uh, as a maximal great being, he, he would have to... All of his actions, or or whatever, they would have to ultimately result in the greatest, the maximal level of great, of great stuff or great things happening or whatever that's logically possible. Um, no, he he could exist and be awful. He could exist and intentionally be torturing humans. He could be on par with Satan and just be anti-human. I mean, he did say in Genesis that he repented even making us. He literally regrets making human beings and admits to making a mistake when he created us and is sorrowful that he did so. He repents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That comes down to hermeneutics though, right? Like I don't take that literally or or that sort of thing. Like, Oh, and God's, Asking in the Garden of Eden, where where are you? He he knew that he wasn't ignorant of the facts. So, the the repentance is. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into hermeneutics, but the 
the explanation that I made sense is this isn't even related to omniscience. It's more related to God's immutability. Um, that's the attribute that the Bible has in mind here, because it's talking about, well, God, has, has he changed to us, and that sort of thing. Okay. No, he's gone through an extrinsic change right. in relation to creation or whatever, but it's, it's not directly about, oh, God didn't know that this was going to happen, and now he repents. It's, it's sort of anthropomorphic okay. language. So, yeah. so, so that we're not too far from the, from the, from the crux here. What... Can, can you give me a specific example of something that you believe good, greater good, that, could, that God was going to make happen, or that did make happen, but he needed J.C. Dugard to be raped for 18 years in order to accomplish his goal? Give me an example of something that God couldn't have done unless he made sure J.C. Dugard was raped for 18 years. Um, well, yeah, it's the one I've always been saying. God, God wouldn't be able to save as many souls as possible. Like what? What, what does that mean? How, how could that rape end up in more souls than he could have saved without it? How could it? So I, if I'm just, yeah, I, I can imagine any number of scenarios why that rape would lead to a specific event. Um, again, I would have to know the case. Maybe... Maybe if she's walking out with the cops or something and they're arresting the guy, um, she bends down and picks up a penny. And this, oh, this stops some guy uh, going down the road or something like that. And then that that leads to him missing work. He gets pissed off. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. She could have found that penny on her way to school. God could have put that penny in front of her on the way to school. No rape needed. Yeah, but it's it's the thing that you're saying. If, if they found a penny in front of school, we would not have the same end result. Any no, but for you to say that that rape of a butterfly. No, but for you to say that. But Dale, for you to say that that rape has to happen for 18 years nonstop for her to see this one penny is absolutely absurd. Which is why I'm saying. I know you can imagine different scenarios. None of them will involve the rape having to occur. She could have almost been attacked and abducted and then on her way being taken home from the police. She sees the same penny and that's the butterfly effect that saves all of the souls. The actual rape doesn't have to happen. The abduction doesn't have to happen. The 18 years of physical abuse and sexual assault doesn't have to happen. And if your God needs that rape and sex to happen, that, right? you're just saying that maybe if the penny of was course in front I of the know school, that. she would have chose not to pick it up. She would have just kept walking. Maybe because she was so emotionally distraught. Uh, she's like, oh, a, a penny. And for My whatever God. weird reason, that Dale. made her feel better. So she cho- chose to pick it up. And now we have a drastically different outcome. But so, Dale, man, listen to yourself, please. What you're okay. saying is that God allowed her to be raped for 18 years to make her emotional state enough to pick up a penny. That means he could not have made her emotional state in any other way to pick up that penny without forcing her to be abducted at 11 years old and raped for 18 years. That is insanity, Dale. That means your God is so puny that he needs a woman to be raped for 18 years in order for her to Im- be emotionally stable to pick up this penny. That is but nuts it's, to it's me, butterfly, man. It's the butterfly effect, right? It, it's everything, everything in conjunction. It's not 
like you're forcing me to give sort of a one simple example, but there's everything playing into each other. Everything that happens has to happen to achieve the ultimate goal. This is why God created this world instead of choosing to create a different set of circumstances. There would have been a totally different outcome. And God is omniscient. This is what the defeater presupposes, right? So only God would have knowledge of what every single factor from the dawn of time until the end of the world, how they would play off of each other and what causal chains would result and how people would freely choose in a given set of circumstances versus another. And only he knows uh, what the outcomes will be. And this is why my condition would, is I have to, I, before I would do anything, I would have to know with 100% knowledge that a morally perfect God is commanding me to do it. And he's omniscient. Um, you know, he's a maximal great being that's ordering me to do this. Um, only then would my answer be yes. If I'm 99% sure, my answer is no, I don't do it. I'm going to the hospital for a CAT scan because it's possible I'm having a hallucination or something. So, um, yeah, I know that was one thing you wanted to get into. Well, how do you know? How does one know that they have knowledge versus psychological certainty? Did you want to get into that a bit or? Yeah, it's really, it's time for me to wrap up. I've got a, I've got a, okay. uh, an improv class that I teach, um, on, yeah. on Tuesdays and I've, I've got to go teach that class. I've got to be there in an hour and I haven't eaten yet. So I, I do need to go. Um, and, and I know how, we, we said we were going to talk. You, what's that? How, how was it? Do you still think I was avoiding it or? Um, no, I honestly, honestly, I think, there's something, you know, I, I had a discussion with a, a Christian police officer one time and he said, uh, Adam and Eve were the first people ever. And I said, well, I said, there are stories older than the Bible that show us that there are other religious beliefs that say there were other people who were here first. And he goes, yeah, that doesn't make any sense though, but Adam and Eve were the first two humans. So that stuff couldn't exist. And I go, no, no, no. These are like Egyptian scrolls of papyrus that are literally older than the biblical stories that tell us a different story of creation that's a different religion. And he's like, that's impossible. Adam and Eve were the first two people. And I was like, there were Chinese writings before the Bible was ever written. He goes, that's impossible. Adam and Eve were the first two people. And we talked past each other for a solid three hours and I could never get him to understand that the story was separate from the paper it was written on. And I'm like, that would be like me writing down right now, typing on a laptop that someone existed a million years ago and then printing it out and handing it to you. I'm like, it wouldn't make any sense because clearly I'm just a guy who printed this out on modern technology, but it says that I know who the first person was. And he was right, but that would be impossible because Adam and Eve were the first people. And I wanted to slam my head through a window. Like, I, I couldn't make any progress. Do I think he was intentionally doing it? No. I think he had this loop in his brain that he couldn't break out of that Adam and Eve were the first people, so any story that predates them is automatically false. And to me, that just shows the power of indoctrination. I couldn't get him to break free from that. And I think with you, of course, you're, you're brighter than that, and that's not your issue. But I think with you, 
it's a similar situation in that you won't even consider what I'm saying because you're, you're so convinced that whatever happens is good. Whatever happens ultimately is going to have a good purpose because God is morally perfect. You won't really even consider that God's not all that powerful or that God doesn't exist or that God does exist and is a total dick and hates humans. Those three options aren't even in there for you. You just go, nope, no matter what horrifically disgusting thing I bring up, a child was raped, a person was set on fire, a a guy walks into a church and murders 11 people, he's racist, Uh, the Holocaust. I mean, we have... We have run the gamut of the most horrific things that have happened in human history, and we never even touched on slavery, but you're like, nope, all those have, you know, God uses all that stuff for good, and it's so easy for you to discount, and to me, Dale, to be honest with you, I know you're saying that you don't believe David is a seeker. I think that you have, I think you've solidified yourself so much in your confirmation bias that you are no longer a seeker. I don't think you're seeking truth. I think you're seeking evidence that your preconceived notion is correct. And that's that breaks my heart because I think you have it in you to find these answers and to continue seeking for the truth. But I think once you stop considering the possibility that like when I talk about God needing a prerequisite, meaning he's limited on power and that God using a rape for something good, you were having to go to such absurd realms of thought, Dale, to say things like God needed J.C. Dugard to be raped for 18 years straight so that she would pick this penny up. You've, you've abandoned your, your seeking. You were only seeking evidence that proves you right. And, and that's not being a seeker, Dale. You have reached a level of absurdity that I just don't even feel like a conversation with you is going to be fruitful at this point because I don't think you're seeking truth. I think you're seeking evidence for your confirmation bias. I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings, but that's just seven, oh, no, I, seven I, years I, of I doing this. Honesty. I can tell you. Yeah, I will reflect on this. And w- is there any way, would you be able to send me a, re- a recording so I can listen? Because we did it through phone, so I, I wasn't able to record on Oh, sure on my end just so I can, I can listen and, and hear it for myself. And yes, yeah, I'll, I'll ask that you not share it anywhere because this is going to be for the patrons only. This is the private stuff for the people who make these conversations possible. Um, but if you can promise not to share it anywhere else, then yes, uh, I can do that. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that's even privately. Like if, if David Johnson wants to hear it, uh, do you mind if I send it to him or, I mean, I guess the two of you, that's fine. I just, I don't want the recording to get out because these, this is specifically for people who pay to make these conversations happen. Without them paying to support the show, uh, these conversations won't happen. I'm off doing a radio job, you know, 40 hours a week, uh, not doing this show. We never even talk, you know what I mean? So without them, it wouldn't happen. So, uh, gotcha. Okay. The yeah, two yeah, of you, I'll, I'll just the two of private, you, that's fine. For but, private use then. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm fine with that. You know, you could just sign up on Patreon. It's like a dollar a month. So <laughs> anyway, <Okay. laughs> uh, and by the way, if you did do that, you would be able to engage with the folks who are going to be responding. So that's something to consider as well. Um, but yeah, it's literally, uh, uh, the, the dollar may be sold out. I don't know if that's the next level up, maybe five, but either way, yeah, I can send you this, a copy of this recording for sure. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, I appreciate your time. I want you to reflect on that. I want you to listen to this. 
if you're willing to come back on and talk about what we addressed, uh, then sure, I would be willing to continue talking. I don't like to give up on folks. Uh, and I don't mean to be rude when I point these things out. I just, I really want you to stop and consider the levels and the reaches that you're having to go to in order to defend this God, you know? And I just wonder how much is too much. I feel like everybody has their breaking point, right? Like even with Trump and his supporters, he started off with a huge base of people who loved him. And the more stuff he does and the more he, he get, people get tired of allying for him, like Sean Spicer and then like the whole Michael Cohen stuff. And finally people just go, God, you know, I just got to my point where I couldn't defend him anymore. It got too insane. And I think a lot of atheists are sitting in my position now who were once in yours and had a breaking point of going, you know, I just couldn't do it. Jerry DeWitt was a pastor for 25 years constantly struggled, had issues of challenging his faith, gets a phone call at three o'clock in the morning of a woman who's talking about her son who was just killed in a motorcycle accident. His body parts are ripped all over the damn street. And this kid was a great kid. He was a Christian. He was doing great in school. He was just starting college, life going perfect. And then he, this woman had to call and say, why would God take my son in such a horrific way? And he had been making the making excuses for God for years and years and years as a pastor. And that was the thing. That was the, the log, the absolute unit of a road tie of a, of a road tie that, that broke that camel's back and made him go, I'm not going to defend this God anymore. It makes no damn sense whatsoever that God would take this perfectly innocent kid and scatter his body parts in a motorcycle accident across the street. I cannot defend this monster anymore. And that was the breaking down of his faith. He's like, I'm not going to be the spokesman anymore. And then he started researching and, you know, his, his faith unraveled after that. Um, I just wonder what one thing for, for me, I know you gotta, you gotta go, but just for my own, I didn't in the show, but if, if I did present independent reasons to believe that a maximal great being exists, like God exists and he's morally perfect, um, would, would that change how you're seeing my answer at all? Or would the, the consideration of your moral conscience or whatever still be so powerful that even those reasons well, I think would those, still be like, no. I think those reasons would be theodicies. It's going to be one of these... Um, William Lane Craig arguments of if you can conceive of it, it must be real. And it just, again, it's just, it, his arguments are so horrendous and, and they're just so basic and they've been debunked a million times by every atheist on YouTube and it falls apart logically. Something like that, I think is going to be filed as a theodicy. Like here's one potential way to prove that there could be something out there. It's more of a potential deistic argument to consider the atheist who says there is nothing as opposed to there might be something. I don't think that's going to get us to this because in the facts of reality, when we see a girl who was kidnapped and raped or we see something like the Holocaust, in order for you to have to go to these lengths of he needed her to be raped for 18 years to pick up the penny, or he needed 6 million Jews to be tortured and killed for a greater good. I say that your God is weak. I say that 
the argument supporting that for a God that would need six million Jews to die or for a young 11-year-old girl to be beaten and raped for 18 years. If he has to use that in order to do something good, he is not worthy of worship. And to me, that proves that he doesn't even exist. He can't exist as a morally perfect being if he needs this horrific stuff to happen in order to do good because a morally perfect being would be able to accomplish that good without the horrific disgusting things like the holocaust and child rape surely there is a being we can conceive of that is better than your god so that's where i that's where i fall on it so and max maybe you could show me that it's possible that a maximally good being exists but you would have a really hard time proving to me that the God in your Bible is that same God. Yeah, there would be, you would consider that a negative evidence kind of thing, and it would be so overwhelming. That that evidence would override any positive evidence kind of thing to your sure, mind. So, sure, I think, you, right. I think you providing that would actually be negative evidence against the God of the Bible to show that he's not the most powerful God in the world. He's certainly not maximally good in the Old Testament. And if we look at our world around us, if there is a maximally good God, the God of the Bible, I hope, is bowing his head to whatever God you're talking about that's maximally good in your, in your argument. And then I have to wonder why this maximally good God isn't stopping the horrific God of the Bible that's seemingly torturing human beings or drowning us yeah. or making their bowels fall out or making them blind or born with cancers at three months old. I mean, come on. You know what I mean? So, gotcha. yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I really I, appreciate I, your time. I'll get you a copy of this entire unedited recording. Um, and, uh, and I hope you reflect on it, and you let me know. You reach back out and let me know. I'll block off a day where you and I sit and talk again, and I would really, really look forward to how you reflect on our conversation. I, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, you're a pleasure to talk no, to, I, and I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, I, as I said, I respect you a lot after getting, you know, you coming on our show and stuff like that. You, you're thoughtful. You try your best to have a meaningful conversation. I, you know, I, I could tell you're trying to understand. You just don't find my reasons convincing and that sort of thing. So that's the kind of conversations I appreciate. So yeah, I respect your, your honesty and giving me your take there. Awesome. Dale, thank you so much, man. Guys, uh, patrons, go go check out their website. It is skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. It's Dale Glover and David Johnson are hosting that show, Skeptics and Seekers. Go subscribe to the podcast. Show them some love. I'm sure David could use some support over there. <laughs> <laughs> he could always, yeah. <laughs> All right. Have a great week, everybody. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much, Dale. I appreciate your time. All right. Take care, David. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, guys, there you have it. Um, another show in the bag. I want to know your thoughts on Dale and on how I handled it. Was I a jerk to him? I hate saying things like absurd. I feel like that's an insult, but I don't know what other word to use. It does feel a bit absurd to have to go to those links, and I, I don't mean to insult him, but it's really hard to listen to, to hear someone have to stretch that much in order to make their God good instead of just admitting reality that maybe their God isn't so good after all. Uh, he seemed to be very nice and open to it and wanted to reflect on it. Maybe we'll have another conversation in the near future. I certainly hope so. All right, guys, thank you as always 
for the support. The conversation will continue on patreon.com slash David C. Smalley. So please go over there. Leave your comments below. What could I have done better? What could we improve on? And what do you want me to talk to him about the next time he's on? I hope you guys are always driving like you know each other. I'll see you next week.